Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Ever used Craigslist? Maybe you've used it to find an apartment to rent or a new cat. Maybe you've used it to find a new job or an old coffee table. Maybe you even used it to hook up with someone. No shame in that. What is shameful is using Craigslist to rob and murder. And that's exactly what today's killer did, Philip Markoff, aka the Craigslist killer. On the surface, Philip seemed like a normal guy, a guy on the path to a lot of success. He had six foot three, blonde hair, blue eyed, a soon to be doctor, studious kid in his second year of med school in Boston. He was ambitious. He finished his undergraduate degree a year ahead of schedule in just three years. Seemed like he had a good head on his shoulders. He did not. Towards the end of his short life, Philip was hiding a secret life from his family and his fiance, Megan, whom he lived with, and none of them would know about it until his arrest. They had no idea he was trolling around on Craigslist looking for victims or that he'd created some BDSM hookup profiles behind his fiance's back. They knew he gambled. They didn't know how much and how often or what he was willing to do to get some extra poker money. They didn't know he had random women's panties hidden under he and his fiance's bed. Today, we look into both Philip's secret and his public life, and we dig deep into how the internet became a new tool for killers to find their victims, and how Craigslist in particular seemed to become the most popular tool to find a stranger to hunt. While the internet offers us so many great opportunities, wouldn't be able to be a podcaster without it, it's also opened up uh, us to some new dangers. Growing up, I can't tell you how many times I was told, don't talk to strangers. And now look where we're at. Most of us talk to strangers via social media or through chat rooms or comment threads or through sites like Craigslist literally every day. This week, we explore Craigslist, the Craigslist killer, others who have used the internet for murder, and so much more on another big old true crime edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday and get on in here, Meat Sack. Grab a seat inside the Suck Dungeon, the Cult of the Curious, 
Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, flying snake expert, and you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, happy holidays to those who have just finished celebrating Hanukkah, uh, to those about to celebrate Christmas, and to everyone else. I hope Santa's good to you. And I hope everyone involved in the Bad Magic Productions Giving Tree this year are feeling a little bit better than maybe they were a few weeks ago. And now let's talk about flying snakes. Damn it! Why, Lucifina? Why did you trick me into you know, believing they're not real? Uh, got a lot of emails this past week. Uh, turns out there is a flying snake. Actually, turns out there are five uh, of those tree-climbing, gliding bastards. Uh, how did I never hear of them? I added my flying, winged bush cobra joke last minute to last week's general butt-naked suck, a, a little lie right before recording. I just assumed there was no such thing as a flying snake. I did Google winged snake. Didn't see anything pop up right away, so I thought it was good. Like an idiot, I did not take five seconds to Google flying snake or gliding snake. A lot would have came up if I would have. Uh, so shame on me for not doing my due diligence. I made up all my cobra nonsense. And then I said, uh, quote, get out of here. Snakes don't fly or glide. Thank God. Oh, they do glide. There are five different types of flying snakes. Members of the Chrysopelia genus found from uh, Western India down throughout Southeast Asia into the Indonesian archipelago. Luckily, they are not nearly as venomous as my made up winged bush cobra. They can't kill you. Worst case, just some mild irritation around the bite. They can glide up to 75 feet away from the base of whatever tree they've climbed. Uh, they are remarkably similar to, to what I made up in many ways. They, they even climb up mangrove trees, just like in my lie. So the snake joke was on me. After all the tricks and fuckery I've tossed out there, uh, I deserve to have one horribly backfire. So thanks for the correction emails. Uh, well-deserved. <laughs> Apologies for not checking further into flying snakes. Uh, lesson learned. I uh, just wanted to address that right away. So why Lucifina? All right. Now that out of the way, it is Craigslist killer time. Uh, today is not the first time we have dived into one of the darker corners of the internet. Way back in May of 2017, we dove into arguably the darkest corners of the web in episode 35, Tales from the Dark Web. So much craziness to explore there. If you're using Tor to browse around all the places you just can't reach with a standard internet browser, places law enforcement can't track to your computer, at least places where we're told, we're led to believe, cannot be traced to our computers and our private Wi-Fi routers. No IP address. Uh, and there the old dark web, some part of, parts of it, um, harmless to explore. Probably most of it harmless. Uh, other parts, uh, real bad. Be very careful if you dick around on the dark web. You don't want to be looking for a place to talk to like-minded personal freedom advocates who just don't want their IP address uh, being tracked down by the government or anyone else on principle and people who just really value their privacy and then end up in a chat room where people don't want to be tracked because they are making and sharing kitty porn. Uh, while exploring the lives of some of our modern killers, we've also looked into how some of these dirtbags have used the regular old non-dark web to aid them in their terrible quests, like figuring out how to kill someone, uh, like how Casey Anthony Googled foolproof suffocation so she could possibly, or let's be honest, almost certainly, figure out how to kill her own young daughter, uh, allegedly. Uh, we also looked at how Eric Harris, uh, one of the kids behind the Columbine massacre, used the internet to rant about his murderous desires on an early AOL homepage before committing a mass shooting. And today we look at how uh, a killer used the Craigslist slice of the web to line up his victims, Philip Markoff. Actually, while Phil is our main focus today, we'll also look into other killers who lured in their victims via Craigslist. Craigslist, to be clear, not inherently a bad place at all. Uh, mostly a giant, legitimate, uh, up-and-up marketplace many used to find a good deal on all kinds of shit. 
I mean, almost anything, a used refrigerator, someone down the street is selling a cheap crib in the next town over, uh, a snowmobile, a blender, pair of old boots, an extra swing for your swing set, maybe a little more foos for your foosball, just whatever. It's a place where you can find a new bass player for your band, new laborer for your construction crew, new lonely dork for your barbershop quartet, all kinds of shit. Craigslist is basically just a big old constantly updated newspaper classified ads page. But one not just from a single city, one from basically all of the cities in the U.S. and a few other countries as well. Uh, Craigslist can also be used as a place to hook up with a stranger or to pay to hook up with a stranger. Uh, Not used like this as often anymore. Uh, But when our tale took place back in 2009, back before Craigslist removed its adult services section, a section previously known as its erotic services section, uh, it was used heavily for prostitution and other pay-for-play sexual services like erotic massages. Uh, you used to be able to easily find a lot more than a new tattoo artist trying to build a client base or a job opening for a dental hygienist or uh, barely used 17-inch Jeep tires. Philip Markoff used it to rob and kill. Mr. Markoff, a.k.a. the Craigslist killer, seemed to have had no reason to wind up turning into the piece of shit he became. His childhood, as far as we can tell, doesn't seem to be full of horrific Uh, abusive experiences that would provide fodder for Time Sucks, resident dark comic Steph Coxcurvy to make some ghoulish, ye might be a killer, kind of routine out of. Uh, To be fair, I guess no one is really forced to become a serial killer. And Philip was not, based on victim count, uh, even a serial killer. I I definitely think he was on his way to becoming one, and so do the detectives who caught him. Luckily, they nabbed him before he was able to rack up a big body count. Philip seems to be a different kind of bird than most of the killers we've explored here before on Time Suck. So many of the killers we've covered here had a really rough start to life before they became killers, right? They were abused, uh, you know, or sexually molested and or traumatized in a myriad of different ways. Uh, some seemed almost destined to become killers. Not the case with the Craigslist killer. Uh, a private investigator in Boston described Markov as the perfect all-American kid. And at least on the outside, Markov did seem to be the perfect all-American kid. Handsome, smart, well-respected. When he was arrested, he was a second-year med student at Boston University School of Medicine. Great school. On the path to what looked like was going to be a very promising future, uh, Markov was engaged to his fiancée, another all-American kid named Megan McAllister, who planned on going to med school herself. If he would have chosen just not to give in to his violent urges, the two of them might be married doctors right now with a beautiful lake cabin complete with a big boat docked out front, a big main house in some gated community near a golf course or something. Markov appeared to be, at least to his classmates who knew him in Boston, on the path to living a wonderfully affluent and fulfilling life. But none of those peers seemed to have actually truly known the real Markov. While he was in med school, he was also leading a secret life. And he's far from the first killer to do this. Uh, Actually, I would say most killers lead secret lives, especially serial killers. Uh, maybe almost all do, if not all. I mean, hard to be really open about being a murderer and get away with it for very long. Oh, uh, you know, what do you do for fun, uh, Jerry? Ah, uh, break into people's houses and kill them mostly. Uh, sometimes I rob them. Mm, I always take at least some little trophy when I leave. Sometimes I do a bit of raping, uh, depending on who's home, you know, when I sneak in. Not my main thing, but I, I do enjoy it. Uh, I'm also in a bridge club that meets every Monday night. Uh, let me know if you play and want to make a game sometime. No, uh, Philip, not the first killer to lead a secret life. And he wouldn't, of course, be the last. He was, though, one of the first killers to gain a significant amount of notoriety for using the internet to find his victims. Uh, The web has definitely made it easier than ever to lead a double life. For better or for worse, uh, you can reinvent yourself and present yourself as whoever you really want to be. Easier to be a bit naughtier than it used to be, right? You don't have to sneak off to some seedy bar anymore, know a guy, you know, to find an escort, hard drugs, illegal poker game, whatever. You can find all that stuff online. 
as we learned in the dark web episode, you can have hard drugs sent to your house, sent to your PO box. You can find escorts, all kinds of other types of illicit services and various legal and illegal online marketplaces. And if you're someone providing these illicit services, say a drug dealer or a sex worker, the web can be a, a great place to uh, you know expand your business, to meet new clients. No need to stand out there on some cold street corner. No need to duck into some dark alley and look over your shoulder to make sure no cops are nearby or, or somebody you know meaning to do you harm. But also, if you're someone providing these services in person, like a sex worker or an erotic masseuse, the web can be yet another great place to be introduced to a killer. Uh, it's a place to make contact with some psycho whose real name you probably don't know. You might not even know their real number. They could be using a burner phone, like Philip does. Uh, they uh, in this in this suck today. They could be communicating through an email address that you know no one else in their life even knows they have. Depending on where you meet up, you might not even know what kind of car they drive or what the Uber that dropped them off looks like. If they do something to you and you live, all you have to report is just what they look like. The web provides a great deal of anonymity for these dirtbags. And one of them could use it to lure you to your death. Uh, the rise of murders where the victim meets the perpetrator from an interaction on the internet has led to the creation of its own special term, internet homicide. And uh, internet killer is a term found in media reports for a person who broadcasts the crime of murder online or more commonly who murders a victim met through the internet. Depending on the venue used, other terms are internet chat room killer, Facebook killer, Craigslist killer, etc. Some of these killers are serial killers and some are not, like Markov. As many of you already know, serial killers are murders who target three or more victims sequentially with a cooling off period between each murder and whose motivation for killing is largely based on psychological gratification. Killers, serial and otherwise, have used forms of social networking to attract victims long before the advent of the internet. Uh, for example, between 1900 and 1914, Hungarian serial killer Bela Kiss lured 24 victims to their strangulation deaths by using personal ads published in local newspapers. You might have to suck Bella one day. Uh, this creep stored his victims' remains in large metal drums out in Hungary that he kept on his property, their bodies soaking in alcohol. He would have killed more women, but he got called off to fight in World War I. And after two years... Uh, after this bachelor who lived alone left for the war, his landlord, thinking he might have been killed and fighting uh, and was never going to return, started clearing out his property. And then he found the drums with the bodies inside. Uh, who the landlord never found and who no law enforcement authorities ever found was Bella Kiss. It's believed that Bella did not die in the fighting, that he narrowly escaped capture in Europe, and that he ended up in New York City. So much more to his story, if we ever want to do an episode on him. So much weird with that dude. Uh, before the internet, killers like Bella Kiss found victims through lonely hearts clubs, they were called, matrimonial bureaus, and newspaper newspaper personal ads. Just whatever print media was popular and nearby and had these personal ad sections. Uh, printed personal ads have been around a lot longer than I suspected, since the 1690s. Early postings were a product of their time and place when marriage was more about the responsible than the erotic. As many early ads emphasized social and economic pragmatism over the possibility of romantic love. Uh, one might find a wealthy bachelor looking for a, a well-born lady or a recent widow in search of a new gentleman for the household. Back before the web, people paid to have small advertisements placed in the personal section of the newspaper all the time for a couple centuries. And I found some examples that I find humorous from over a century ago to compare against today's modern digital personal ads. Oh, <laughs> very different tones. Uh, check out some of these personal ads from a January 13th, 1914 edition of the Seattle Star. Uh, the same year, serial killer Bella was still placing similar ads in similar papers over in Hungary. <laughs> this first one, wish to make the acquaintance of neat, industrious woman. No triflers. Object, matrimony. And then leave a number. That's it. 
So, so classy, very succinct, but also classy. Not looking for a quick hookup. Not looking for someone into pegging or pony play or cuckolding. Dude just wants someone neat and industrious. No triflers. So fucking sick of the triflers. Uh, here's another one. <laughs> Honest Widow, 48, working hard. Wants acquaintance of sober, kind-hearted gentleman over 35 with steady city position, object marriage if suited. And then they leave again their number. So practical and modest. Not looking for a no-strings-attached hookup. Not gold digging. Looking for deep pockets. Just wants a, a stable dude who's got a good work ethic. Maybe works for the city. Isn't a drunk asshole. Sounds like the 1914 Seattle dating pool was real shallow. Bar was low. Just, I don't give a shit how ugly you are. Uh, you know, how little your dick is. If you have a job and you can keep your hands off a whiskey bottle, I am interested in marriage. Uh, one more from this same 1914 personals page. A young man wishes to meet nice woman who has a few thousands to invest in good business, object, business, and matrimony. And then, of course, you know, the contact number. Uh, no mention again of sex or attractiveness. Very different from a lot of today's equivalents. I, I do think that last one sounds a little shady, though. Right? Maybe he had a legitimate business or maybe that dude, some kind of H.H. Holmes, Bell Gunnis, Bella Kiss type, wants to take your money and kill you. Uh, now, Bella Kiss type killers use the digital version of these old personal pages. Right? In 2009, Philip Markoff used Craigslist. And while Craigslist no longer has a dedicated adult services section, other very similar websites still do, like classifiedads.com. <laughs> I had no idea that this kind of shit existed. Uh, never used a dating app or anything like this. And that's not some kind of uh, brag or judgment. That, that shit was around when I met my wife. I just, uh, I don't know, I just never, never tried it out. Uh, I just preferred asking people in person. Most of my single friends, though, use these dating apps, but I don't remember any of them ever talking about using something like classifiedads.com. <laughs> Did not realize there was uh, still classified ads type, you know, places to post on. Inside the personal section for classifiedads.com. <laughs> oh my God, I found the following subcategories. Casual dating, men seeking men, men seeking women, misconnections, women seeking men, and women seeking women. And I clicked on casual dating, uh, December 15th. I swear to God, the very first post I find at the top <laughs> uh, has a subject of ready to eat, exclamation point. Written by some dude saying his name is Dwayne, the perfect name for this post. And it says, I am a 40-year-old orally fixated man seeking women in the Spokane area with one desire, to have their pussies eaten. <laughs> Married, single, and everything in between. No strings attached, no reciprocation, no reciprocation required. You provide transportation and a safe spot to do the deed. Please direct all inquiries via text. And then a 509 area code number uh, is listed. Wow. Uh, Dwayne's message, very different than the 1914 personal ad messages. Dwayne's not seeking matrimony. He's not looking for someone who's neat and industrious. He's not trying to find an investor. He just is looking for a woman with a pussy and a hankering to have it eaten. Uh, the 2020 Northwest uh, <laughs> dating scene changed a wee bit since 1914. And I love that Dwayne uh, needs these women to provide transportation. He doesn't have a car. He might not have a job. He just has a desire, one desire. He has a working tongue and an eagerness to please with it. <laughs> the very next ad posted is kind of similar. It has a title of Skinny Guys Feed Me. And here's what is written by someone claiming to be named Michael, living roughly two hours from Spokane in Richland. In Spokane, only a half an hour from Coeur d'Alene where we are. Uh, he says, I'm 36, male, 5'11", 200 pounds. I keep my body hair trimmed short. I'm looking for skinny guys in Richland who will sit on my face and feed me. <laughs> Call me names, slap my face, slap my dick, and feed me. 
I can be a stress relief guy on whom you could let out your frustrations. I'm willing to discuss terms. I look forward to being humiliated. <laughs> That's the whole post. Showbiz. Uh, Richland Michael, just a red-blooded American male looking for some piping hot peanut butter. Uh, he doesn't want business money. He doesn't want uh, investors or matrimony. He just wants you to sit on his face and feed him. He just wants to be your real-life stress doll. I'm not totally sure what he's talking about with the feeding, but I assume, I strongly assume, he wants he wants to do the shit in his mouth, right? He never mentions blowjobs. Never, never mentions oral sex. Just wants to be, quote, fed. I also like how he writes... <laughs> I'm willing to discuss terms. Like this is a, a formal business transaction. Hello, I'm Michael. Well, hello, Michael. I'm Ted. Nice to meet you, Ted. Uh, let's get right down to business, shall we? I'd like to discuss terms. Excellent. How does sitting on my face for a period of no less than five minutes, no more than 20 minutes sound? Mm. Would you be willing to make the period at least 10 minutes? I'm afraid I find that only five minutes uh, will not suffice. It will be unsatisfactory. Okay, I... I guess I can bend a bit, I guess. You're a, you're a tough negotiator. Ten it is. I can agree to those terms. Now, let's talk about fecal consistency. Uh, and I'll stop now. Uh, let's hop over and see what's being posted in Men Seeking Women. Very first post. <laughs> Seeking a woman in Spokane to give parental spankings. Sounds interesting. I'm intrigued. Someone going by the name of Casey writes, the title pretty much says it all. <laughs> I'm interested in finding a single mom who is firm with giving OTK spankings. Preferably on the bear and with an open mind of starting an FLR that would have domestic discipline included. I've only experienced a little, but would like to meet someone with similar interests. Uh, OTK stands for over the knee. I'd look that up. And uh, when I did, I came across some very interesting video thumbnails. Uh, FLR stands for female-led relationship. According to Urban Dictionary, it's a romantic heterosexual relationship in which both partners agree that the woman will act as the leader and ultimate authority. Uh, again, with this post, I think of Albert Fish. Just, Come on, bimbos and bear cats, grab a switch and spank my fat bottom bloody. Showbiz. <laughs> my showbiz voice, showbiz voice makes no sense to you. Uh, please check out the Albert Fish suck. It's done a while back. Uh, also, my favorite part of this post is that Casey, he's not looking for any old single women to spank him. He doesn't want some single childless lady <laughs> putting him across his knee and spanking him. He wants a mommy. Mommy's only, please. Uh, fine. And that all sounds you know, pretty harmless. And now, now, am I kink shaming a bit here? Yeah, I probably am. And I'm not going to apologize for finding some of this stuff fucking hilarious to me. Uh, if you feel shamed, well, you know what? How about you choose to get over it? Uh, you have fun doing it. Get your spankings in. Get fed. And I'll have fun laughing. Deal? Okay, deal. Haley Safina. Uh, one more. Clicking on women seeking men now. And the first post has a title of looking for hot fun. Solid title. To get a horny dude's attention. Short to the point. Clicking on it. Someone going by the name of Anna writes, direct connect me. Followed by a phone number and then call and text. Uh, I'm guessing that Anna is probably an escort. Uh, maybe she's someone truly looking for hot fun, but I doubt it because she doesn't include a photo, uh, doesn't include literally any details about who she is. <laughs> just a name and just someone looking for hot fun. Uh, I'm going to go with sex worker. Uh, something I find creepy about a lot of these personal ads when thinking about them in the context of the Craigslist killer, they don't often provide a picture. Dwayne Dwayne had a photo, which it was exactly who I thought it would be. Uh, usually though, just a number. And what if that number belongs to like a burner phone? Again, you know, if something goes wrong, you don't even have a real number to give to the police. Uh, what if you reach out to someone you don't know, don't even know what they look like, agree to meet them in some random location where, where they might not have any ties to, you're just so vulnerable. And if you don't have someone come with you and you disappear, I mean, how is anyone going to be able to find you? How will investigators track down your killer? 
like it has changed so many other things, the internet has also changed how one can be murdered. Uh, easily to, easy to see, excuse me, why internet killers are, are drawn to the anonymity and information the web offers. Uh, Maurice Godwin, a forensic consultant, argued that there are some sadistic predators that rely on the Mardi Gras effect, the ability to hide one's identity on the internet to lure and murder repeatedly. I had never heard of the Mardi Gras effect before this week. If I'd heard about it out of context, I would have assumed it had something to do with uh, boobs and beads. Uh, nope. It's defined as a term referring to the ability to mask one's identity on the internet as a way of expressing oneself freely and anonymously in online chat rooms and news groups, or to assume various personalities to lure people and commit murder. Uh, this kind of anonymity uh, played out in the most insane way in 2007 uh, when Thomas Montgomery, a 47-year-old married man and father, was convicted of murdering a workmate in a case called the Internet Chatroom Murder. going to give a few examples of other killers who have used the internet now. And I find this, this first story, I don't think there's enough information on it to, to really make a full-time suck, but I wanted to throw it in here. Uh, Zach, Zach found this. I got sucked into such a wormhole looking further into this. This, this story is so fucking ridiculous. And just sad and tragic. So many things. So convoluted. Okay, Thomas. Thomas had been posing online. This Thomas Montgomery, this 47-year-old married dude, father. He'd been posing online as Tommy, an 18-year-old Marine. And he entered a teen chat room for the popular game site Pogo.com. There he meets a user, tall, hot blonde, claiming to be a 17-year-old girl named Jessie, supposedly a softball-playing high school senior from West Virginia. And they start flirting 47-year-old dude asking for nude pics of a 17-year-old high school girl. Uh, you know, Thomas is a fucking creep. Uh, talking about all the sexual things he like to do with her. She's playing right along. All this, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, message sex, like phone sex, whatever. Then Thomas's, uh, you know, teen daughter sees an instant message pop up on her dad's computer. They're sexting. Sorry, I don't know why I couldn't think of that. And she tells her mom, uh, Thomas's wife. Thomas's wife finds out about this virtual affair, all kinds of lewd sexual messages that Jesse had been sending her husband, you know, nude pics uh, of her, of supposedly of her in uh, provocative poses. And I say supposedly, because this is going to get, you know, weirder. Uh, Jesse even sent a pair of panties to Tommy that Thomas's wife found. Thomas's wife then sends Jesse a photo of her and her husband and their daughter and tells 17-year-old uh, Jesse that the single 18-year-old dude, the 18-year-old Marine that she thinks she's been talking to is really this then 46-year-old dude with a kid who was in the Marines many years ago. Now Jesse breaks things off with Thomas. Then, pissed off at him, she tracks down and emails a coworker of him. Uh, of his, this 22-year-old, good-looking part-time machinist and college student named Brian Barrett. And now she starts an online online romance with Brian. And then Brian and Jesse taunt Thomas, Brian's coworker. They tell others in the chat room that he's a creep, he's a liar, he's a pedophile. Thomas is fucking enraged. Other coworkers hear about it. He becomes the laughing stock of the office. Now stay with me. Jesse starts flirting with Thomas again. She breaks up with Brian. Then she sends Thomas more provocative photos. Then she breaks up with Thomas again, goes back to, you know, virtually dating his coworker, Brian. So much drama for this fucked up, pathetic love triangle where none of the players involved have ever met each other in real life. Now, Brian makes plans to go visit Jesse in real life. Jesse tells Thomas about this plan and Thomas fucking snaps. On September 15th, 2006, as Brian is leaving work, three shots ring out. Brian's found dead a few minutes later in the parking lot where he worked, shot three times by a military rifle. Police quickly learn of the internet love triangle from coworkers. When they can't find Thomas Montgomery right away, they fear he's heading to go kill Jesse. So they track her down through Brian's messages. They're able to get her address. 
When the police arrive at her home, they are surprised to find a middle-aged woman named Mary Sheeler opening the door. Mary is Jesse. Mary is not a high schooler. This is going to get weirder. Uh, Jesse is described as a middle-aged woman whose age is not given in sources that we came across. Uh, so the woman calling Thomas a liar for lying about, you know, his age, also a liar. And so gross, Mary has been using pictures of her own fucking daughter to flirt with dudes online, her college-age daughter. Uh, she pitted these guys against each other at work. She helps get one killed. Thomas Montgomery ends up losing his family and his freedom over all this. He pleads guilty to the murder of Brian Barrett. In exchange for his plea, he gets 20 years. He's in prison right now. No charges are filed against Mary. What she did was clearly unethical, but not illegal. Uh, she was punished. Uh, Mary's husband left her. And her daughter, the real Jesse, apparently cut off all ties with her creepy ass, deranged, and now estranged mom and stopped speaking with her. One dude dead, another in prison for murder, uh, two different families torn apart. Well, three, I guess, if Brian has, oh my God, all over this anonymous chat room, fake love affair. So sad and pathetic. Uh, the web can be used in such weird ways. Uh, the first serial killer known to have used the web to find victims was John Edward Robinson. Arrested in 2000, uh, referred to in law enforcement news as the USA's first internet serial killer and the nation's first documented serial killer to use the internet as a means of luring victims. Uh, John Robinson, born December 27th, 1943, found guilty in 2003 for three murders committed in and around Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, and he received the death sentence. In 2005, he admitted responsibility for an additional five murders across the river uh, at a trial in Kansas City, Missouri. His killings began in 1984 when Robinson hired Paula Godfrey, 19 years old, uh, ostensibly to work as a sales representative. Godfrey soon told friends and family that Robinson was sending her away for some training, and then she disappeared. And then after hearing nothing further from her, Godfrey's parents filed a missing persons report. Police questioned Robinson, who denied any knowledge of her whereabouts. Several days later, her parents received a typewritten letter with Godfrey's signature at the bottom, thanking Robinson for his help and asserting that she was okay and did not want to see her family. The investigation was terminated as Godfrey was of legal age and there was no evidence of wrongdoing. Now, Robinson had killed her. No trace of Godfrey has ever been found. Well, John would go on to kill two more women before finding the internet in its early days in 1993. He started roaming some of the very first social networking sites using the name Slave Master, looking for women who enjoyed playing the submissive partner role during some BDSM sex. We're back with the BDSM already. So soon after the truck stop, killer suck. Incumus demands you return, slave. Lay on the bondage board, grab the steel restraints, and prepare to be flogged. Uh, Robinson would kill four more women he initiated contact with, contact with over the internet. Sheila Faith and her daughter, Debbie Faith. So sad mother-daughter combo. Uh, a Polish immigrant named Isabella Lewicka, not even going to make any references, uh, and Suzette Troughton. Uh, Robinson was arrested in June 2000 at his Kansas farm near the little town of Lacine, after, or Lacine, you know, Kansas, after a woman filed a sexual battery complaint against him and another charged him with, pretty hilariously, stealing her sex toys. Dude serial kills for years, doesn't get caught, then he steals the wrong lady's sex toys, and down he goes. Uh, on the farm, a task force finds the decaying bodies of two women later identified as Lewicka and Troughton in two 85-pound chemical drums. And soon, John Robinson is behind bars. Now he's on death row in Kansas after pleading guilty in Kansas and Missouri to a total of eight murders. And he may have killed more. Uh, another internet killer who murdered before the Craigslist killer was making headlines was Hiroshi uh, Maui, uh, Maui, a.k.a. the suicide website murderer. This is such a weird story, too. Uh, the birth of the internet quickly gave rise to chat rooms and in some suicide chat rooms. 
Uh, that's where this Japanese serial killer found his victims. He typically posed online as someone who wanted to make a suicide pact with someone else. And then when they met in person, he would choke out his suicide partner and then, of course, not kill himself. Uh, kind of skipped the pact part. He, he did eventually die due to his actions, though. After being convicted of three murders, he was executed by hanging in the Osaka Detention House in July of 2009. Uh, odd dude we could do a full suck on, Hiroshi. Uh, diagnosed with a paraphilic psychosexual disorder, he could not achieve sexual release unless he was strangling someone. How terrible if that is the only way you can come, by strangling someone. So glad I don't have extreme sexual needs. Uh, my wife's naked body really does the trick. You know, I mean, most of the time. When it doesn't, I call Michael from Richland. We agree to some terms. And I sit on his face and I feed him a bit. You know, no big, no big whoops. Come on. <laughs> or I give Dwayne, <laughs> or I give Spokane area Dwayne a call. And I wait to be picked up by some random woman, any woman in need of some no strings attached, you know, cunnilingus. JK, gosh dang. Showbiz. Uh, no, uh, Hiroshi loved to strangle. Man, did he ever. He had to drop out of the can Kanaz, uh, Kanaza. Oh my God. Kanazawa. There we go. Kanazawa Institute of Technology after trying to strangle a classmate. Then he got fired and in legal trouble for trying to strangle a coworker. Then he got arrested and sent to prison after getting caught trying to strangle two different women. Then after he gets out, he goes back to prison for trying to strangle a junior high kid. Then he starts lurking around suicide chat rooms, uh, strangling people he'd met there. Dude was one strangle happy son of a bitch. A lot of weird, creepy shit has gone down in online chat rooms over the years. Of course it has. Good old Mardi Gras effect. People feel so free to reinvent themselves on the web or to reveal their true selves for better or for worse. When no one knows who they really are, when they feel like they can pretty much, you know, uh, you know, say anything, type anything, suffer little to no consequences. Not me. I have not reinvented myself on the web at all. I am who I have always been here, uh, a shy, beautiful 19-year-old Vietnamese woman trying to make it in this cold world as a hot Instagram model. When I'm not podcasting, as you know, I'm laying around on the beach trying out new micro-kinis and setting thirst traps for hungry dudes wanting to be fed. A um, couple more quick examples of internet-based meetups gone wrong now, and then on to a more detailed overview of Craigslist, then on to our Craigslist killer timeline. Uh, even consensual homicides have been planned out in chat rooms before being carried out in real life. Such a strange case here. Not everyone online wants to be a killer. Some people want to be murder victims. Seriously. And they've explored this dark wish in the anonymity of the web as well. In 1996, a 35-year-old married Maryland woman, Sharon Lopatka, uh, asked to be tortured and strangled to death in a series of conversations she'd had with a man she'd met in an online chat room. Investigators found six weeks worth of correspondence between her killer and her. Uh, six weeks of her asking some dude to please torture her to death. She wanted to die, and uh, she was turned on by the thought of being tortured to death and thought that she would really be turned on by actually being tortured to death. I hope, hope that last orgasm was a powerful one. Uh, remember in the truck stop killer suck when I talked about how not every consensual sexual act is okay, how some, you know, maybe aren't very ethical, how some consensual sexual acts are at least highly morally questionable. Uh, this is one of those acts. Robert Frederick Glass, her 45-year-old single killer, later pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and sexual exploitation. He was sentenced to at least five years behind bars, then died two years into a sentence of a heart attack. At Sharon's request, Robert strangled her to death in October of 1996, three days after she arrived at his North Carolina home. In the Lepotka case, uh, reportedly the first where a murder suspect was put into custody by the police department, mainly due to email evidence. And it received a lot of media coverage, with most of the media focus being centered on the dangerous consequences of spending too much time online in the wrong corners of the internet. And internet-related deaths, of course, continue. 
Uh, there isn't a lot of good data related to homicides, you know, born from dating websites and apps. It for sure happens, but it's hard to qualify and to quantify. I mean, do you only count people who've been killed on their first date? Uh, what about people who've been killed by those they met online and then later developed a relationship with? Uh, do you count them? Uh, in December 2016, a 26-year-old woman in Mexico City went missing after having gone on several Tinder dates with a guy her age. Her bones were then found in a trash bag at his home, and he was accused of dissolving her body in hydrochloric acid after she refused to have sex with him. April 2018, a man in Winnipeg, Canada, stabbed by two women and an 18-year-old boy after he'd swiped right on the wrong Tinder profile. So many other homicides. Uh, 26-year-old Bailey Boswell recently found guilty of first-degree murder, improper disposal of human remains, and conspiracy to commit murder back in October uh, for killing Sydney Loof, a 24-year-old she'd met on Tinder. Her 53-year-old boyfriend, Aubrey Trail, also charged with murder. The couple killed Loof in their Wilbur, Nebraska apartment, then chopped her body into 13 pieces using a hacksaw and tin snips they'd bought from Home Depot just a couple hours before the murder. Then they scattered her remains, which were wrapped in plastic bags along country roads in Clay County, Nebraska. Why did they do it? At their trials, the court heard testimony from people who knew the pair saying they talked about, quote, gaining powers by committing murder and making videos of, of both torture and murder. It's like General Butt Naked all over again. They're going to gain some powers. What the fuck? How terrifying. Sydney thought she was going on a Tinder date, ended up with, uh, you know, uh, two psychos who killed her, possibly tortured her, thinking they could gain some kind of power from her murder. Okay. Enough about the rest of the internet now. Uh, let's focus on Craigslist for, you know, uh, a bit a bit more before I dive into how Philip Markoff used Craigslist to commit his murder and some other crimes. But first, a quick sponsor break. Today's Time Soakers brought to you by Can Dummins, House of Flying Snakes. Woo! Located in Dorka Lane, Iowa, Can Dummins, House of Flying Snakes, sells very real, very capable of climbing trees and then gliding back down snakes to everyone who knows that flying snakes are real. Everyone who's not a complete fucking idiot. Can Dummins has all five varieties of how could anyone not know they're so fucking real? Flying snakes! Woo! So unless you're some kind of lazy, stupid pile of shit who takes research shortcuts, come on down and check them out. And if you still don't think they're real after hearing this ad, go fuck yourself. Woo! Wow. Uh, I gotta say, that was one of my least favorite sponsors. I felt personal. Uh, You know, I'm happy they bought an ad, but uh, Ken Dubbins, he seems like a dick. I mean, anyone could have made that, anyone could have made that mistake. It could have happened to anyone. Okay, one more quick ad before we jump into what Craigslist is uh, all about. Time Suck is also brought to you today by Spokane Area Dwayne. Spokane Area Dwayne is a standing offer to provide free oral pleasure to literally anyone in the Spokane area with a vagina. Literally anyone. If you have a pussy, Spokane Area Dwayne will eat it for as long as you'd like. No questions asked. No reciprocation required. Married? Dwayne doesn't care. Shrub slut? Dwayne don't care. Feminine hygiene issues. Dwayne cares a little bit, but he'll still chow down. Spokane area Dwayne has but one request. He needs a ride. You provide the transportation. Spokane area Dwayne will provide the destination. Your pussy, 100% eaten, guaranteed. Spokane area Dwayne has a deep hunger, and only one thing can satisfy it. Your pussy, 100% eaten, guaranteed. Huh. Interesting. Uh, odd sponsors today. Uh, I, I do feel like I like that one better than the, the snake guy. 
All right, now let's talk about Craigslist. I'm insane. I first heard of Craigslist.org uh, over 15 years ago. I actually only used it one time, as far as I can remember, to sell a couch. I think I sold it pretty fast. I remember feeling surprised. Maybe that same day, then totally forgot about it. Uh, by the time I'd started working on this episode, completely forgotten about how it worked. Let's go over it. Craigslist is an American classified advertisements website with sections devoted to jobs, housing, items wanted, services, community service, gigs, discussion forums, so much more. According to a 2019 article, Craigslist provides classified ads for over 700 cities and in 70 countries. It's essentially a gigantic online bulletin board and the go-to place for millions to find uh, an apartment, a job, a book club, a nanny, a hookup, a coffee table, trampoline. Again, so many, so many things. Uh, Craigslist sites collectively get almost 600 million visits a month, despite looking, at least in my opinion, pretty fucking janky and outdated. One of the most frequently used websites in the entire U.S. It gets more hits a day than Netflix. It's around the 15th most popular site in the U.S., 14th the other day when I looked, uh, beating out internet behemoths like Netflix, Zillow, Walmart, Pinterest, LinkedIn, CNN. Craigslist still gets more hits in all those places. Uh, it ranks around uh, 118 when it comes to the most traffic sites in the world. Uh, when Craigslist blew up, it destroyed the tr traditional system of classified ads printed in newspapers. Newspaper classified ad sales, or excuse me, newspaper classified sales fell 77% in the 10 years following the site's founding. Between the years 2000 and 2007, Craigslist took a gigantic bite out of U.S. newspaper revenue, over $5 billion worth of income. Uh, Craigslist was conceived in the early days of the web by Greg List. Uh, I mean, Craig Newmick. How funny would it be if a company uh, called Craigslist was founded by a dude named Greg List? Like, why? Why didn't you call it Craigslist? Uh, Craig Newmick began the company in 1995 as an email distribution list to friends about local events in San Francisco and the Bay Area. It started so small, and then it grew so fast, quickly became a web-based service in 96, expanding into other classified categories. And, uh, you know, it, it looked a lot like it does now back then. Uh, the site's mostly text-based layout has been left largely unchanged since the early 2000s. Uh, the story of the founding of Craigslist, pretty cool. Craig's father, an insurance salesman, died when he was 13 uh, when they were living in Morristown, New Jersey. His death left the family financially hurting. He and his mom and his brother, uh, Jeff, moved from a house into a small apartment. They struggled with money for the remainder of Craig's childhood. Uh, Craig went to Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland on an academic scholarship, graduated with a bachelor's degree in 75, a master's in 77. Then he went back to New Jersey, worked for IBM for the next 17 years uh, as a computer programmer. Uh, started in Jersey, moved to Florida, then moved to Michigan. And then, you know, he's in Detroit, 1993, the self-professed nerd, moves to San Francisco to take a job with Charles Schwab. That's when he's introduced to the internet. Two years later, he's 43. He gets laid off from Charles Schwab. He also gets a huge severance package. Thinking about what he wanted to do next, he decided that he wanted to do something charitable, something to help people out, you know, give back. He makes Craigslist initially not to make money, but to bring people together in this free marketplace where they can exchange ideas and products. Uses his newfound free time and being laid off to launch the mailing list of uh, San Francisco art and technology events that would morph into Craigslist.org. Uh, Craigslist first launched just five months before the online browser company Netscape went public, which was a big internet coming of age moment. Uh, came out right before the launch of the Windows 95 operating system, which was a big deal at the time. And it got popular real quick. Uh, and it's worth a lot of money now. Three years ago in 2017, Forbes conservatively estimated that Craigslist was worth at least $3 billion. Newmark, now 68, owns at least 42% of the company, making him, uh, as of three years ago, at least worth $1.3 billion, at least. 
And while I totally forgot about it, most other people uh, did not, and it continues to get more popular. A 2019 article listed Craigslist as the number one classified advertising site in the world, both by revenue and traffic. And they claimed it took in over a billion dollars in annual revenue. <laughs> the way this company is organized, I find very unique and interesting. Uh, Newmark has been very upfront over the years in discussing his lack of social skills, organizational aptitude, and business acumen. And because of these perceived shortcomings, uh, he's kept his Craigslist organization very small, citing a concept in psychology known as Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number, yeah, which suggests that there is a cognitive limit to the number of people with whom any person can maintain stable social relationships. Uh, British anthropologist Robin Dunbar proposed that this number is no more than 150. So Newmark and current Craigslist CEO Jim Buckmaster have endeavored to limit the size of Craigslist to allow, uh, you know, uh, Craig and other employees to have healthy working relationships. Currently, Craigslist only employs about 50 people. How crazy is that? A company of 50 people making a billion dollars in revenue annually. Craigslist, one of the big names from the early dot-com days, uh, not only to survive, but to thrive. Craigslist has seen other once giant internet companies come and go like Netscape, uh, Napster, uh, Pets.com. Remember Pets.com? I used to love their sock pu puppet mascot, uh, but then they died in 2000. Uh, Netscape, you know, breathed their final breath in 2008. Uh, AOL, they've seen, you know, them come and go kind of. Uh, AOL is, you know, still around, but not nearly as big as it was before. It peaked as a company back in 2001. It was bought out by Time Warner in 2000 for $165 billion, then sold eight years later for a massive loss, then bought by Verizon in 2015 for $4.4 billion. Obviously still a lot of money, but a lot less than $165 billion. Uh, it's fallen so far when I looked up, up some info on AOL, a popular search regarding AOL showed up as, does AOL still exist? Uh, Craigslist has outlasted hundreds of web businesses that at one time or another were valued at more than Craigslist was. Uh, the biggest business threat to ever hit Craigslist may have been the negative media scrutiny that came in the wake of Philip Markoff's trial. The Craigslist killer headlines brought a lot of bad press to Craigslist. Philip's case and a few other similar cases, uh, some concerns over sex trafficking, led to the company dumping its adult services section in September of 2010. They shut the section down despite it costing them millions to do so. It's estimated they lost $44 million in revenue in 2010 alone due to no longer taking, you know, 10 bucks a post for adult services ads. So how safe or unsafe is Craigslist now? Uh, by far the biggest crime on Craigslist now is scamming. A new study from the New York University Tandon School of Engineering points out the particular parts of Craigslist, Craigslist of which you should be wary. In the first systematic empirical study of Craigslist scams, the team analyzed more than 2 million listings on Craigslist over a period of five months. They found about 29,000 fraudulent listings in 20 major American cities, of which only 47% were flagged as suspicious by Craigslist. I don't know, maybe, maybe Craig should use some more of that Craig money to hire some additional quality control specialists. Maybe, maybe uh, knock his payroll up from 50 employees to, I don't know, 60 or something. With a billion dollars in annual revenue, I, th I think he could, you know, afford to hire a few more people. Uh, the NYU research team also identified the most frequent scams on Craigslist with the credit report scam leading the way. This is a scam when someone responds to a fraudulent post, likely trying to rent an apartment or buy a house, and they're instructed to purchase a credit report for the property that doesn't actually exist. You end up literally paying for nothing. And you also get your credit card information stolen oftentimes so they can rack up more charges. Pretty sweet. Uh, another super common scam the team found were clone listings, rental listings from other sites reposted on Craigslist, offering the same listing at a lower price. Most of these scammers are actually in Nigeria. Uh, they put up the ads, 
then request rent, then request rent deposits via wire transfers from the people responding to the posts. And again, in addition to taking the money for the transaction uh, where they, they don't get anything, they're not actually taking a rent deposit, uh, they often steal their victim's credit information, use it for other purchases. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, how popular various online scams are in Nigeria way back in the early days of Time Suck in episode 23. Uh, scams aside, why does Craigslist still seem to have a reputation for harboring more violent attackers than other websites? Is that deserved? Hard to say. We couldn't find any studies that compare how many people have been killed due to someone meeting their killer on Craigslist compared to, say, Facebook or you know Twitter, someplace like that. Uh, doing a lot of Googling, it does seem like in the court of public opinion, at least, Craigslist is linked to murder the most often. Uh, by 2019, 128 murders and counting linked directly to Craigslist. Uh, why? Two things that make Craigslist a particularly attractive platform to would-be killers and other criminals, according to Jack Levine, a Northwestern University criminal criminologist. Uh, first, Craigslist allows users to operate in total or near total anonymity. Not everyone's putting up their, their picture like Dwayne, uh, meaning that they can both pretend to be just about anyone and can expect to meet a range of potential victims. You know, it's not personal picture uh, and video-based, like say Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, or Instagram. This is the same reason that newspaper ads used to be a favorite tactic for killers who wanted to brag about their crimes, right? Second, unlike, uh, or, you know, lure in victims. Second, unlike newspaper ads, uh, Craigslist postings don't require leaving a phone number or even a name. Unlike, say, Twitter or Plenty of Fish, other places where you can meet strangers anonymously, uh, also Craigslist is seen as having a legitimate commercial purpose that causes users to act differently. Uh, Levine said they're more willing to take risks and tolerate eccentric or suspicious behavior because there's money on the table. I interpret this as meaning basically when you're selling a couch or when you think you're picking up a ping pong table or whatever, your guard might not be up the same way it would be if you were heading out on a date. Uh, the first Craigslist killing thought to have taken place in October of 2007 when Michael John Anderson killed Catherine Ann Olson, a nanny who frequently used Craigslist to get jobs. She answered an ad for a babysitter. When she visited Anderson's home to inquire about the position, she disappeared. And when the 24-year-old uh, Minneapolis woman's body was discovered in the trunk of her car abandoned in a park, Police searched Anderson's home five blocks away, found Olson's blood inside and a gun in his bedroom. Anderson claimed he was uh, there during the slain, but that the killer was a friend of his who just thought it would be funny. That's a quote. Just thought it would be funny. And the police were like, oh, cool. That makes sense. Uh, sorry to bother you. <laughs> and then they left him alone and they just, you know, never came back. Yeah, right. Now he received a life sentence without parole in prison right now. The most recent killing that a blog called Craigslist Killings uh, that tracks murders linked to the site uh, happened on April 18th, 2018 in Norman, Oklahoma. Elise Ramon Smith and Jerron uh, Keontae Moreland were killed by Brady, uh, or Betty Bodle, Kevin, oh, excuse me, Betty Boltler, Kevin Boltler, and Johnny Barker. Uh, the trio met the victims after they'd arranged the sale of a gun to take place in a grocery store parking lot. Uh, Craigslist has attempted to deal with the various crimes facilitated through its site in a pretty limited way. On Craigslist's safety page, they say that uh, the overwhelming majority of Craigslist users are trustworthy and well-meaning. With billions of human interactions, the incidence of violent crime related to Craigslist is extremely low. And that's correct. And that's, and they're right. You know, with that much traffic, you know, uh, yeah, there's, there's going to be a few people uh, here and there that are bad, but over, you know, the overwhelming majority of people are going to be good. And, and, and yeah, and they haven't done a lot to really, uh, yeah, beef up their staff or anything to, try and ensure that, you know, less horrible things happen through hookups and Craigslist, but uh, how could they even do that? And I don't feel like it's their responsibility to make sure that every transaction is safe. And I mean, that's just impossible. Uh, I don't think the onus should be on them in that, in that sense. 
they should try and prevent obvious scams, and they do, you know, maybe they could hire a few extra quality control employees, you know, that they could afford, but, uh, but really, what can they do? When you respond to an ad on their site, I, I think you have to accept that you're dealing with a stranger, and there's going to be some risk involved, right? You don't want to take that risk, uh, don't use the site. It's pretty simple to me. No one's forcing you to buy or sell anything on Craigslist or any similar sites. If something happens to you, not Craigslist's fault. Uh, it's the fault of whoever, you know, did that to you. Uh, in 2018, after the U.S. Senate passed H.R. Uh, House Resolution 1865, a bill known as the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, Craigslist shut down its personal section completely rather than open up themselves to potentially a lot of litigation. Uh, this new bill allowed law enforcement to prosecute websites, which allowed sex workers to use the site. It's kind of an interesting phrasing, allowed. Uh, I think it's sad that they had to do this, actually. I mean, even though Craigslist had already shut down their adult services section almost a decade before, now they shut down all their personals so they don't get sued, uh, which cost them a lot of money. It was the most popular section. I'm sure they lost literally hundreds of millions in revenue doing this. You know, if you choose to sneak in a sex worker ad to the personals page, code the language somehow, uh, how's that Craigslist responsibility to find it? You know, you get killed. That's horrible, obviously. But is it Craigslist's fault? I don't think so. So many fucking lawsuits in this country. Too many. Uh, despite shutting all the personals down, people are still sneaking in sex ads. I don't know how you could stop it completely. Uh, I hopped on Craigslist and found some in some random sections. Uh, check out Discreet Elite Gardener, Handyman Model Photographer. That's the title of a post in the CDA slash Spokane Craigslist posted in the Creative Services section on November 30th. Uh, snuck in between a post for uh, a Facebook ads agency and a Get Your Business Online post. Let me, let me play some music to really set the mood for discreet elite gardeners' magical words. Hi. A lot of us are at our wits' ends. We have frustrations built up to the blowing point. We are bored out of our gourds and really, really need a release. What could be more fun than a romp around the pool or the garden? Or yes, even the kitchen? I'm a super healthy corona-proof have been isolated a long time and have an incredibly developed immune system. I am all organic. Use no fragrances or lotions. Smell like a sensual man. And I'm a mature, critical thinker whom appreciates excellence in my discreet clients. As you can see, I enjoy life. Get a hold of me if you are inclined for some adventure, some laughter, and some moaning, all caps, Oh, and I may additionally request you do not smoke or drink alcohol when we are engaged, as those substances tend to degrade our overall performance and satisfaction levels. Namaste. You know, he's no Dwayne from Spokane area, uh, but he's clearly looking to provide some adult services. Maybe not a sex worker. I don't know if he's charging for anything, uh, but he's definitely not somebody looking to share some coffee and conversation. He snuck that ad in there. Uh, and these type ads, at least around here, uh, they do seem very hard to find now, but they but they do sneak him in. I found another ad for a, a blatant hookup in the same section right here in CDA. Uh, something about a top bear chub looking to hook up with a bottom, uh, a bear bottom, I think, uh, tonight in downtown CDA. But I forgot to copy and paste it. When I look, went back an hour later to grab it. It was gone. The old Craigslist police nabbed them. Or maybe they found their, you know, bottom and they, and they took it down. Uh, Craigslist can and has done a good job of reducing sex worker postings by ridding their site of personal ads. But how, how could they ever rid it of, you know, murderers? They can't. No way you can stop some murderer pretending to just want to sell you some tires from really wanting to kill you. And that's how a lot of Craigslist killers and would-be killers, uh, you know, we're not covering today, have committed their murders, right? They, they act like they're just selling a, a car or a phone. And then when somebody shows up to buy it, they attack them. 
Sometimes the victims are skilled or lucky enough to get their hands on a weapon and fight off the attacker. Sometimes they're not. Okay, now that we know a decent amount about Craigslist and Spokane area, Joanne, uh, and how it works and how other troubled meat sacks have used the internet to commit their crimes or be victimized, let's dive into today's main event, the life and crimes of Philip Markoff in this week's Time Suck Timeline after a short sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. 
rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now it's timeline. Timeline! My God, time. (laughs) For reals. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. On February 12th, 1986, Philip Markoff is born to Susan Haynes and Richard Markoff. Old Dick Markoff, a.k.a. Dickoff. Uh, sorry if that's what kids called you in junior high, Richard. Uh, Dickoff was a dentist in Syracuse, New York, and Philip was his second child. Philip had an older brother, Jonathan. After his parents' divorce, he'd have a younger half-sister named Haley from his mom's second marriage to Gary Carroll, who was a banker. Uh, Gary, his uh, longtime stepdad. Philip grew up in the small town of Sherrill, New York, for four hours northwest of New York City, just 40 minutes east of Syracuse. A little town, population of uh, just over 3,000. Richard and Susan divorced when Philip was in elementary school. He stayed with his mom while his older brother went with his father, uh, who continued his dental practice in Syracuse. Uh, Philip grew in a two-story colonial house with blue siding. For most of his childhood, he lived with his mother, Susan Haynes, stepfather, Gary Carroll, his older brother, John, and younger half-sister, Haley. Uh, Susan spent most of her children's early years at home with them. The family moved into the Cheryl neighborhood of Thurston Terrace in the mid-80s and for the most part kept to themselves, neighbors said. Uh, many said the family seemed normal, but, you know, pretty quiet. Some remember seeing Philip shooting a basketball in the driveway. That's about it for the neighborhood. The family occasionally attended services together at St. Helena Roman Catholic Church in Cheryl, though locals said more often Carol and Haley, uh, you know, would come without the rest of the family. Uh, Susan eventually took a job at uh, Turning Stone Resort and Casino, one of their gift shops. She was a regular at meetings at the local quilting guild. She enjoyed making crafts. When Philip was in first grade, she also made uh, tissue boxes for his classroom. Some neighbors also recalled Susan sorting through some neighbor's trash, once pulling out valuable postage stamps that she later sold. So, you know, maybe a little weird. Not every mom digging through their neighbor's trash for stamps, but mostly normal. A quiet family kept themselves. Dad's a a dentist, stepdad's a banker, mom works at a casino gift shop. All sounds very middle class. No major scandals that anyone is aware of. Uh, No one seemed to worry about anything terrible going on behind closed doors. Terry Law, who is Philip's first grade teacher at E.A. McAllister Elementary School, remembers Markoff's white blonde hair and his quiet nature and sense of humor. Law said, I just remember him being a bright boy. Others remembered Philip having an early fascination with money, coins, and trading cards and causing no trouble in the neighborhood. 
Uh, I also got way into trading cards, right? Baseball cards, football cards, uh, basketball cards. My grandpa had a coin collection I was fascinated with. Uh, I had a savings account I was, I was really into. You know, what, what kid isn't fascinated by money on some level? Again, all feels pretty normal. By the time Philip started going to high school at Vernon Verona Sherrill High School, VVS for short, in Verona, New York in 2000, it's like the neighboring community, uh, tall, handsome kid, big frame with broad shoulders. He'd be uh, six feet, uh, six foot, three inches tall by the time he graduated. Looked like a football or basketball player, but instead he was a strong competitor on the VVS bowling team, uh, the Red Devils. He was also on the golf team. So big kid, but maybe not a big athlete. I feel like referring to someone as a strong competitor means that they were, okay, you know, it's funny phrasing. If they were really good, I think you would just say that they were really good, wouldn't you? Was, was, was Philip really good at bowling? Ah, he was a strong competitor. That was like a very nice way of saying, eh, he's okay. Philip was more dedicated to academics than athletics. He was a member of the history club, the youth court. He was an honor student and a member of the National Honor Society. In 2004, Philip graduated from VVS, and in his senior yearbook, he lists Carol and Haynes as his parents. Curiously, no mention of Dickoff. So even though dad lived nearby, this leads me to believe they were not close or there was tension between them, speculating here, uh, but pretty big oversight to accidentally forget to mention your birth father as being your dad in the yearbook, unless you're either really mad at him or he's just not in your life, like your stepdad is. Uh, after high school, Philip enrolls at the State University of New York in Albany, SUNY Albany, as a pre-med student and continues to show a strong work ethic and desire to succeed. Around the time of his high school graduation, Susan divorced her husband and Gary moved to downtown Cheryl with Haley, who was a uh, current student at VVS. If any of this was particularly upsetting to Philip, and I'm sure it was on some level, uh, he didn't show it. Uh, and then the second son of Dickoff uh, hustled off to college. And he did uh, well in college, taking extra courses, graduating in just three years with a degree in biology. Socially, not a very outgoing person. He was described as reserved around his friends and awkward around women. And to be fair to him here, if he's knocking out four years of college in three years and he's, you know, trying to get into med school, he, he didn't have a lot of time to be outgoing, I wouldn't think. Not a lot of time for small talk and hanging out when you always have to study. He did spend most of his time studying uh, when he wasn't in class. And what time he didn't spend studying, he spent uh, volunteering at the Albany Medical Center Hospital where he worked in the emergency room. So he's busy. And when he wasn't doing all that, uh, you know, while he didn't have much of a social life, the social life he did have seemed to revolve around playing poker. Very common in the mid-2000s. At that time, poker was all the rage. It really started to pick up in popularity in the late 90s. Uh, sometimes there'd be three, four different poker tournaments on cable TV in 2006, the same time. I remember watching a lot of those tournaments, Phil Ivey, these different players. I got really into it. Uh, not as into it as Philip, but pretty into it. I was never that good, even though I did actually buy a strategy book at one point <laughs> that I read and tried to implement its techniques in some games. I may have dreamed for a moment or two about becoming some rounders type kick-ass hotshot poker player. Uh, from 2003 to 2006, the online poker pool doubled in size each year in the U.S., uh, often grew uh, more than that. The boom ended in 2006 when the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act became law in the U.S. Several online poker sites, including the industry leader at the time, Party Poker, I remember them, uh, left the U.S. in October of 2006. Our own script keeper, Zach Flannery, produced Washington State's first two televised poker tournaments, Ringo's Rumble 1 and 2, uh, in 2005 and 2006. I'm not the only Suck Dungeon employee to have gotten a, a bit into poker. Script Keeper dove further than I did. Uh, Philip played all-night games with his friends. His reputation was that of a serious player, uh, a good player, uh, also known as a terrible loser. Took the games way too seriously in his friends' opinions. Got uh, too upset when he lost. 
Uh, later, he would spend copious amounts of time playing poker casinos. And when you hear the word copious now, do you, uh, do you also think of Yahim Kroll? Hopefully not just me. Uh, one private eye later said of Philip after he got caught, he had a terrible gambling habit. There's no evidence that I'm aware of at this time that he actually had debts that he had to pay off. No bookies or loan sharks, that type of thing. There's no evidence of that. And I suspect what was happening here is that he needed to feed that habit and getting the cash to be able to go immediately to the casino and gamble it. This will make sense a little more when we talk about his crimes. Uh, 2005, while at the Albany Medical Center Hospital Emergency Room, Philip meets a woman named Megan McAllister, a native of New Jersey. She's a fellow volunteer, two years older than Philip, and those who knew her described her as an attractive and sophisticated young woman. Megan was from Little Silver, New Jersey, and by all accounts, her upbringing was picture perfect. Her parents, Jim and Lynn, had four children, Megan the youngest and the only daughter. Uh, Megan asked Philip out, he accepted, and they continued to date regularly and became college sweethearts. In 2007, Philip graduates from SUNY Albany and applies for medical schools after taking the MCAT. Also around this time, he sets up an account on alt.com, a BDSM site. Incubus demands you put this gag ball in your mouth. Get in the holding cage. Wait for suspension training, slave. I need to pick out the right whip to punish you with. Prepare for ball busting and sexual ascension. Uh, sorry, uh, another, another truck stop killer suck. Flashback there. Uh, Phillips accepted into Boston University Medical School in 2007, and he and Megan moved to Boston. And things seemed to go well for the young couple there. Uh, very well. On May 17th, 2008, as Philip is finishing his first year of medical school, he takes Megan on a nice little horse and buggy ride around Boston, and he proposes to her. She accepts. She then puts her own dreams of medical school on hold to plan a big wedding. They set an August 14th date, make plans for a, a first-class extravaganza. The wedding registry lists mainly ex very expensive brands of China, silver, and crystal. Some speculated that Megan uh, hoped to be living an affluent life in the very near future, maybe a little more affluent than Philip was uh, anticipating. And this may have led to Philip feeling, feeling uh, more pressure than he could handle to please her. Pressure that led him to looking for a variety of pressure releases in a secret life. Not saying any of that is her fault whatsoever, but just that he felt, you know, extra pressure. Philip came from a world where uh, a microwavable casserole dish would make a great wedding gift, not high-end China. Uh, also, at this time, Philip is already in debt for $130,000, uh, you know, from all of his college and med school loans, and he's living entirely off credit. Even the $1,400 a month he's paying in rent comes from, you know, credit, borrowed money, a lot of stress. Uh, we'll look into how he may have tried to hide from that stress very soon. While Megan planned their wedding, Philip attended his classes, most of which were in Boston's South End neighborhood at 72 Concord Street. And he did very well in medical school. Smart guy, good student. Boston University would not divulge his grades, not even to homicide investigators, but they would go as far to say that he was a very good student in good standing with no disciplinary history. Now let's fast forward to the day before Philip would commit his first Craigslist-related crime that we know of. Enter Trisha Leffler. On April 9th, 2009, Trisha's flight from Vegas to Boston lands around 6 p.m. She'd booked a flight for her first trip to Boston on hotwire.com, uh, but she wasn't there to catch a Red Sox game, which is a fun thing to do there. Fenway, I fucking love it. Uh, Trisha was in Boston to work as an escort. This was not Trisha's first gig. She had a criminal record for solicitation of prostitution. Uh, she changed quite a bit from the young sheltered girl who grew up in a Mormon family in Utah. She had bleach blonde hair. Her best friend was her tiny Pomeranian named Pixie. Bojangle, suddenly interested in the show. Uh, after arriving at the Westin Copley, Play, or Copley Place Hotel in the more affluent Back Bay area of Boston, Trisha logged onto her computer, placed an ad on Craigslist. Even in 2009, sex workers rarely made sure, uh, you know, not to make it explicitly clear that they were sex workers when posting. Uh, or they, I'm sorry, 
Uh, they often made sure to not make it. I did a little double negative there. They wanted to make sure it wasn't blatant that they were a sex worker when they were posting. Trisha recalled later that her message said some version of, if you'd like to come spend time with a sweet blonde, give me a call so we can spend some time together. Reading between the lines, we can spend some time together means, I think, you know, you can pay me for sex. Uh, And then she put her number in the ad and waited. And thanks to the popularity of Craigslist, she quickly got a few calls. The first few weren't serious. Maybe she thought that they wanted to fool around for free or something. She doesn't say. And then she gets a call from Philip about an hour and a half after she posts the ad. Over the phone, Philip asks her how much it will be for a half hour, how much it will be for the hour. Uh, Trisha tells him it's $200 for the hour. There's no talk of sex, no explicit promises made, but both people knew what they were talking about. But a half an hour later, Philip calls her. He's already in the lobby of the hotel. He's downstairs. Uh, By this time, it's after midnight, early in the morning of April 10th. Trisha uses the routine she always used when meeting a client for the first time. She gave her client the floor number, not her room number. Uh, Then she would go to the elevator like she was, you know, trying to go downstairs and then size him up. If she didn't like how he seemed, she would just pretend to be a random hotel guest or just tell him if he recognized her, no thanks. That night, Trisha wore a short black jersey knit dress that showed off her curves. She walked down the hall to the elevator bank. Then the moment the doors opened, she liked what she saw. Philip was a tall, good-looking dude, and he seemed normal. They each said hello. Then Trisha motioned for him to follow her down the hallway and into the room. Philip was dressed in a black leather coat, dark jeans, tan shirt. Uh, Trisha estimated he was in his late 20s, a little older than he was. They go into her room. Trisha closes the door. Then as soon as she turns around, Philip, uh, already pointing a gun at her, in a tone she described as polite, Philip orders Trisha to lie down on the floor. I uh, wish I could ask her questions directly about, like, like, how do you politely pull a gun on someone? and order them to get on the ground. Uh, excuse me, miss. I I know you have an expectation of me paying you for a sexual experience and then leaving, but plans have regrettably changed. And, and for that, I do apologize. Uh, it pains me to have to say this, but I'm, I'm going to need you to not scream for help, please, and lay down on the ground and just await patiently further instructions. Nobody would hate for me to have to shoot you for disobeying me uh, more than I would. <laughs> Thank you for understanding. Thank you very much. Uh, Trisha knows that she has to stay calm and do as he asks. So she gets on the floor. She knows there's no chance of beating him in a physical fight. Uh, She's five foot two, weighs about 135 pounds. He's a much bigger human being. And he has a gun. He puts the gun in his back pocket, goes behind her, kneeling with one knee between her legs, tells her to put her hands behind her back, which she does. Then he ties her up one hand at a time. At this point, Trisha later recalled saying something like, you don't have to do this. You don't have to tie me up. I'll give you whatever you want. You don't have to tie me up. And he responded with, if you just be quiet, no harm's gonna come to you. Okay, all right, what he's doing here is super fucked up. But he does he does seem pretty polite. No name calling, no screaming. You know, pretty polite way to, to tie up a stranger at gunpoint. Uh, at this point, he pulls uh, on a pair of black leather gloves. Trisha begins to think that this might be some uh, strange sexual fetish type thing. Maybe the gun's a toy. He's into BDSM. You know, maybe it's not loaded. Despite what's happening, she's, she's not currently terrified because Philip seems, uh, you know, to her too oddly calm and gentlemanly to be someone in the middle of committing something violent. Uh, Philip then clumsily looks for her purse and takes out $800 in cash, which he then puts in his pocket. Fuck. She traveled to Boston to make money. Now that's not going to happen. He then takes each of her credit cards, asks her for her PIN numbers, which she gives. Double fuck. Uh, she also tell, uh, he also tells her, uh, or she, I'm sorry, she also tells him there's no money to be accessed on them. Uh, that better be the PIN number or there's going to be a problem later, he says. Uh, he calmly puts all the cards in his pocket, including her ID. She begs to have her ID back, saying, can you please leave me my ID so I can get home? Amazingly, he takes it out, and after studying it for a long moment, maybe he wants her to know that he's memorizing her address or something, he throws it down with the rest of the stuff he's not taking. 
She then decides to be bold and asks, can you please leave me at least one credit card? And he responds with, I thought you said there wasn't any money on them. There's not, she says, but I, I, I can have people put money on them so I can get home. Which one do you want? He asks. The one ended in 7649, she replies, and then he slips that one into his pocket, throws down a different one. Not polite. Trisha is scared, but not worried something terrible is going to happen to her now. Uh, she finds herself thinking he's incredibly calm, seems to know what he's looking for. She thinks he's probably done this before, maybe many times. With gloves on, he erases his number from her phone, takes the battery out, throws it behind the entertainment center. Uh, also picks up a pair of her underwear, a white thong from Victoria's Secret, puts it in his pocket. He then asks her about her new laptop. Uh, she says it's old and that he probably doesn't want it. And so he, uh, he assumes that I guess it is old and he just doesn't take it. How great would that be if all robbers and muggers were like that? If when you told them that something that they thought they wanted just wasn't worth anything, they would just let you keep it. Just move on. Give me your fucking purse, lady. Why? There's no money in it. Oh, oh, damn. Ser- seriously? There's, there's no money. No, truly, not a dime. <sighs> well, shit. Forget, forget it then. Who needs a purse with no money? <laughs> hey, how, how about you give me that diamond ring? Uh, that wedding ring? Uh, there's, give it to me. There's a big rock there. You, you don't want this. It's a fake. It's a toy. My daughter bought it at Chuck E. Cheese. Probably 50 cents. Really? Son of a bitch. All right, well, keep it then. Do you have anything of value at all? Uh, no. <laughs> all right, well, I guess I'm going to take off then. No offense, lady. But I don't have time to dick around with your rinky-dink bullshit. Uh, Philip now continues to look around the room, checking the safe, which is empty, then moving some furniture around. Uh, tells her he's looking for some place to tie her to, and at this point, Trisha wants him to leave so badly, she starts suggesting things for him to tie her up to. Uh, how weird. To help your attacker <laughs> help tie you up. Um, I wouldn't tie me up to the bedpost. Uh, when you leave, I could easily lift up the, the bed there in the corner. What if, what if you tied me to one of the doors or something? Oh, yeah. Good idea, lady. Nice. Uh, finally, they agree to tie her to the bathroom door. Then he moves to a different part of the room where she can't see what's happening. She hears him rustling in his pocket for something and the zipper on her suitcase. He returns, proceeds to put three pieces of tape over her mouth. She notices that while he's doing this, he's not wearing gloves. He's taking them off. So she lets him put the tape there without struggling, hoping that it'll capture some of his DNA or his fingerprints on the tape. Very smart. Uh, this will indeed provide solid evidence for investigators. Uh, I wonder if she still thinks he's done this sort of thing before now. He's not seeming like an old pro at this to me right now. Uh, at this point, Trisha notices he's holding a huge knife in his hand. Now she's terrified. She expects the worst, but then Philip uses it to start cutting the phone lines. Then he takes off right after saying, just stay where you are. In 15 minutes, I'll call security and tell them I heard something in the room. They'll come up and set you free. Uh, he takes a pair of panties, cash, cards, uh, also took her camera. Oh, and one more thing. A few days later, Trisha realizes he had taken a second pair of panties, a V-shaped pink thong with black bows. Uh, Trisha now waited, tied to the bathroom door, her mouth taped shut, her hands tied behind her back with zip ties. She stays quiet, doesn't move. She wants to be sure he's not waiting outside the door, waiting for her to do something. She doesn't want to give him a reason to come back in and hurt her. After a few minutes of silence, she twists out of the ties, takes the tape off her mouth, waits another few minutes. Uh, She hadn't planned on calling the cops, but then she realized that he might still be in the hotel. If there was any chance of the cops or security catching him, now was the time. So she steps into the hallway, looks both ways, makes sure he's gone. Then she grabs her room key, room key, runs to the nearest door, pounds on the door. After a moment, a man opens the door. Trisha is shaking. The man, a Tennessee doctor in town on business, is hesitant to open the door all the way. Trisha begs him, please, I need to call security. I've just been robbed. Uh, the man then screams at her, no solicitors! Between telemarketers and door knockers, I'll never get any sleep. And then he slams the door in her face. No, he doesn't do that. That's fucking crazy. No, he's normal. He's normal. He's not a crazy doctor. He opens the door. He lets her in. 
Uh, it's 12.45 a.m. Uh, she calls. For the next two hours, Boston detectives speak to Trisha. Much to her relief, they take her story very seriously. They rope off her room, treating it like a crime scene. One of the investigators is Sergeant Detective Dan Keeler, a Boston PD legend nicknamed Mr. Homicide, who had closed more than 200 murder cases in a dozen years as a detective. Pretty awesome nickname for a detective. Uh, that'd be a terrible nickname for like another kind of cop. They call me Mr. Homicide. Oh, whoa, cool. So what, you're like a, you're like a homicide detective? No, I'm a school resource officer. Why? Uh, Keeler began building his legend at the very beginning of his career in 1980 when he leapt off the Boston University Bridge, fell 60 feet to rescue a suicidal man in the Charles River, and he did save that man's life. So this, this guy sounds like a, a real badass. Uh, after being arrested for prostitution before, Trisha was hesitant to answer the detective's questions, truthfully. Only saying that she was from Vegas, she was afraid the ordeal would end in her arrest, not her attackers. But then Officer Keel set her mind at ease. Uh, to show her, he meant business. He was like a, a good cop. Uh, he threw her in the Charles River, uh, then jumped in to save her, to prove her that he was, you know, a, a solid detective. Still got it! Uh, no, uh, in his gentle but firm way, he persuades her to talk. Doesn't treat her like the criminal, you know, treats her as the victim. Uh, Trisha later described him as very nice and understanding and a great listener. When the question stopped, she was escorted back to the hotel where she was given a different room on a different floor. The next morning, April 11th, Trisha goes back to the police station to take back her phone. I guess they kept it to examine it for evidence and to look at some mugshots. She doesn't see anyone remotely familiar in the photos, but then they show her some grainy still photos they pulled from the hotel's surveillance cameras. In them, she sees a big blonde guy with a leather coat hat walking outside the hotel, and she recognizes him immediately. Investigators also tell Trisha that her attacker had used her debit card about an hour after the robbery. Uh, Philip had gone to an ATM outside a nearby pizza parlor, had taken the last $20 in her account. What a piece of shit. She has 20 bucks. Took all her cash, and he takes her last 20 bucks. Then a few days later, Philip uh, will take again. April 13th, 2009, the day after Easter, Jalissa Brisman, a 25-year-old New Yorker, packs a bag, boards an Amtrak train from New York City to Boston. She had a few massage clients lined up, intended to find some new ones by placing an ad on Craigslist's adult services section, advertising herself as an erotic masseuse. Although her parents were both Dominican, she was a New Yorker through and through. She didn't like being away from New York City. Uh, posts on Facebook shortly after leaving, ah, I miss New York City so much. I miss the rude cab drivers and bipolar weather. Ha ha ha, LOL. On her Facebook profile, Jalissa brags that she was a born and raised New York City hottie, finally getting a hold of this wonderful thing we call life. Jalissa was a little over five feet tall, weighed about 100 pounds, again, much smaller than Philip Markoff. In addition to massages, uh, she worked as a part-time model, posed for photos in bikinis, underwear, and lingerie. Uh, in 2005, she'd first crossed paths with, uh, crossed paths, uh, with one of her future best friends, Sarah, after Sarah posted an ad on Craigslist, looking for a roommate. So much Craigslist! In the story, uh, according to Sarah, Jalissa was maybe not the ideal roommate. Uh, she drank too much, way too much, according to Sarah. Uh, she loved to party. She always seemed to have a different boyfriend, would bring strangers over to their apartment for spontaneous parties. She was in her late 20s, you know, like Sarah. And by Sarah's own admittance, Julia, uh, Julissa was fun as hell. Uh, Sarah and Julissa, uh, despite some differences, soon become nearly inseparable. They go to the gym together. They go out to eat together, go eat sushi, watch Sex in the City together. Uh, she and Sarah would test their potential boyfriends by making them watch Sex in the City. After two years of living together, Sarah's patience, though, with Julissa beginning to wear thin. Julissa and Sarah's opinion, just uh, not growing up, making some terrible choices. Sometimes she was drunk all day. She wanted to keep the nonstop party life going when Sarah's ready to move on to the next phase of her life. 
Felicia seemed like she didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. Uh, so she moves out. The two drift apart. Jalissa goes on to work a, a wide variety of jobs that don't go anywhere. She works as a bartender, shoe saleswoman at a tanning salon, spends a lot of time with her new best bud, a male half chihuahua and half silk terrier mix. She named Coco Chanel, who jangles back into the story. More, more dogs in the story now. Uh, her friend Mark Pines later recalled she would often say, I love Coco more than all my boyfriends combined. Pines, who was in his 50s and 60s when he knew Jalissa, considered himself to be her mentor. They met when Pines held an open audition for a photo shoot when she was 20. When Jalissa walked in, he decided on the spot she was perfect for the role and he eventually featured her in a public service announcement he was producing. Pines, like all of her friends, worried that Jalissa was abusing drugs and alcohol. But then on April 14th, 2007, according to Jalissa's diary, she was inspired to change her life. It would be exactly two years to the day before her untimely death when she would write, I can't do this anymore. I'm turning 24 in two weeks and need to change. Julissa swore off drugs and alcohol, joined Alcoholics Anonymous, quit bartending, focused on her sobriety, tattooed the date of her sobriety on her ankle. Her mother is overjoyed, tells Julissa on Mother's Day in 2008 that her daughter's sobriety is the best gift she could have been given. She goes to AA meetings consistently, even daily, reconnects with old friends, including Sarah, begins taking psychology classes at a local college, goes from bleach blonde to brunette, talks about uh, becoming a substance abuse counselor, becomes a vegetarian, uh, she's so serious about changing her life. She enrolls in classes at the City College in New York where she meets Jack Bennett, coordinator of the school's certified alcohol and substance abuse counselor program. Uh, but while all this stuff is going on, like she's really turned her life around, friends and family are worried that she's still hiding something or that she is hiding something. For one, even though she was no longer working as a bartender, has no regular job, friends notice that suddenly she always has money. She purchased a new computer for her little sister, Always had designer clothes and accessories. They're thinking, where's this money coming from? When Prada came out with this new gold and black aviator sunglasses, which at the time retailed for around 300 bucks, she immediately buys a pair, writes on her Facebook page that she couldn't wait until the new Chanel glasses came out so she could buy those as well. Uh, she's traveling a lot, way too much for somebody with no job. She travels to London, Iceland, DC, Boston, Los Angeles. Uh, Julissa's stories about how she made money didn't make sense to her friends. She told one friend that she could make as much as a thousand bucks a night working bachelor parties, even though all she supposedly did was walk around in a bikini. Uh, she told him she got paid that much just to look pretty, and a lot of them didn't buy it. Her friends started to ask her if uh, that was really all she was doing. Uh, she insisted she didn't touch any of the men she worked with, but that wasn't the truth. Jalissa was working as an erotic masseuse. She took classes from a massage teacher, bought her own massage table, placed ads for these erotic massages on Craigslist under different names like Morgan, Susie, and Rachel. In the ad, she'd write no full service to indicate that she didn't have uh, at least penetrative sex with her clients. According to her friend Sarah, she didn't think of what she did as prostitution. In fact, she looked down on sex workers. She thought sex work was dangerous, even though it sounds like she was a type of sex worker. Uh, she at least walked right up to that line if she didn't cross it. Uh, soon, sadly, thanks to Philip Markov, she would find out that erotic massaging uh, could be just as dangerous as full-blown prostitution. On April 13th, 2009, Jalissa checks into the Marriott Hotel in Copley Square. Back at Copley. Uh, I think I've stayed at this hotel randomly way back in 2002. I think it was this one, right in the heart of Boston, uh, where the Boston Marathon comes to an end. Uh, Jalissa had regulars in Boston, but she wanted to drum up some more business, so she asked her girlfriend to post a new ad on Craigslist under the name of Morgan. It's labeled hot brunette model and masseuse visiting today. And it read, hi, my girlfriend, Morgan, the massage therapist will be visiting Boston Monday, April 13th, available from 1 p.m. to 11 p.m. 
Tuesday the 14th from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. and Wednesday the 15th from 7 a.m. to to noon checkout. She visits only once every one to two months, so don't miss her. Her pics are real, recent, and attached to this message. She is visiting just these couple of days, and I highly recommend her. If you would like to schedule, please email back several time preferences that work for you during Morgan's window of availability. I will do my best to accommodate you. Be sure to include your phone number. I do not give out a contact number until you have provided yours. Kisses, XOXO, Morgan and Mary. So this is the kind of stuff people used to post on Craigslist. Uh, They didn't get a lot of responses initially. Business slow at first that first night. So Jalissa stays in, posting on Facebook, ordering some room service. Uh, She watched a Dane Cook movie, then went to sleep. The next morning, April 14th, Jalissa wakes up on her 20th floor room and posts, almost forgot just how good staying in and watching a funny Dane Cook movie can be. Uh, She then left the hotel to attend an AA meeting. And then at 4.04 p.m., she posted her favorite bands on her Facebook page. Uh, They were in order, The Killers, nice, noise, uh, Led Zeppelin, Third Eye Blind. Okay, I'll get The Cure and Every Avenue. Good taste. Uh, I forgot about Every Avenue. Their track, Tell Me I'm a Wreck, uh, was getting a lot of play in 2009. Uh, I looked them up during the research, ended up listening to, I think, uh, every single one of their tracks on Spotify. Uh, By 5.03, Jalissa was texting back and forth with a guy from high school she had recently reconnected with on Facebook. Then later that evening, Jalissa's uh, friend gives Jalissa's number to a man who had responded to the Craigslist ad. Soon enough, a polite-sounding man calls Jalissa. He's visiting from out of town, would like to see her that night. That's what he says, around 10 o'clock. And he is uh, not from out of town. He's, of course, Philip Markoff. Poor Jalissa and her poor friend who helped set this up, the guilt she must have soon felt. A couple minutes before the son of Dick off, the second son was due to arrive. Jalissa is on the phone with Sarah. She says she has to hang up because she's expecting her new client. Sarah tells her to be careful. And like usual, Jalissa brushes it off. Sarah insists that Jalissa send her a text message when the man arrives. She agrees. And now a woman named Jill Stern enters our story. Jill, who is 49, also staying on the 20th floor of the Marriott, just down the hall from Jalissa's room. Jill was uh, with her 17-year-old son, Lenny, on a trip to look at some colleges. Good town to do that in. Boston, no shortage of amazing colleges. Uh, Around 10 p.m., Jill had settled in for the night with a book when she heard some commotion from down the hall. Sounded to her like someone was moving some furniture, but then she heard a shriek. What the hell was that, she thought. It was high-pitched into her ear. It sounded like a child. Maybe she reasoned the little kid's having some kind of temper tantrum. She tries to continue reading, but the shrieking continues. Lenny hears it too. Jill decides she has to see what's going on. She opens the door, looks outside. Down the hall is a girl laying out on the hotel floor, half in her room, half out. Uh, The girl is so small that in Jill's mind, she is a child. She's the child she imagined having a temper tantrum, and she calls out, are you okay, buddy? It was Jalissa, and Jalissa does not answer. Uh, Her son, Lenny, also now peers out the door. The two of them interrupted by a woman exiting a nearby elevator. Uh, The woman stops immediately when she spots the body on the carpet. She says, holy shit, she scared the shit out of me, and then just opens the door to her room, the room next to Jalissa, and then slams the door shut and goes inside. Uh, Not okay, come on. Not going to check on a woman who's not moving, laying, you know, face down on the floor, halfway on the hallway. That's, a, that's some cold shit, lady. Uh, Jill hears a guttural sound now come from Jalissa's direction, who still is not moving or responding. She calls the operator, tells him to come to the 20th floor immediately. A woman needs help. And they do. A security guard comes up very quickly, uh, bends down to examine Jalissa, moves some of her hair away, and Jill sees blood. The guard then starts panicking, repeating, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. He tells Jill to get back into her room. She does not. She watches the guard call from EMTs and the police. Jalissa is still alive at this point, barely. Another guard comes up. The two men turn her over. She'd been shot multiple times, even though neither Jill nor Lenny had heard any gunshots. 
uh, silencer, maybe. None of the sources say. As Jill walks by Jalissa's room, she notices that the mirror has been shattered, and that two holes have been left, uh, you know, by what she assumed to be bullets, uh, two holes in the wall. 10.36 p.m., about 20 minutes later, Jalissa dies from her wounds, which included a bullet to her heart in an emergency room at the Boston Medical Center. Back in New York, her friend Sarah, getting worried. Uh, Jalissa hadn't texted her, hadn't answered the phone when she called Jalissa's hotel room. She then sends a text about a boy from Yale that Jalissa had said she had met on the train to Boston. The message read, have fun with your Yale boy. Just text me when you get a chance. Let me know you're okay. Because, uh, you know, because her friend had not told her, Jalissa had not told her what the real purpose of the visit was. Uh, when Sarah woke up around four in the morning on April 15th, sees that she still has not heard from Jalissa, she starts to panic. She calls the hotel a second time, asks for security. One of the guards uh, suggests she call the Boston police. She does, and she learns that one of her closest friends has been murdered. Jalissa had resisted Philip Markoff's attempts to rob her. He had smashed her in the head with his nine millimeter and then fatally shot her three times. In his interactions with Jalissa, he had communicated as Andy in both emails and by phone. And Andy's email address would soon be in the hands of investigators. April 16th, the day after Jalissa's murder, the beginning of the media circus about the Craigslist killer. Within 24 hours, the story of Jalissa's murder is circulating nationwide. Now, everybody knows she'd met up with a man through Craigslist, that he'd killed her. The media is running with the moniker, the Craigslist killer. That day, Boston PD released a statement about the crime and include hotel surveillance photos of the man they believe is responsible for Jalissa's murder. Markoff's face now plastered all over the news, grainy photo, but still. Uh, the Boston PD quickly set up the Craigslist killer task force. Specialists assigned to the Boston Regional Intelligence Center are charged with sorting through tips that pour in from the public. They have that fun job of separating the nuts from legitimate leads. Uh, even the NYPD cybercrimes squad ends up assisting. Though the crime had not happened in New York, the cybercrimes squad was the best at that time at tracking down people via their digital footprints. And Boston PD really wanted to make sure this guy got caught quick. Meanwhile, Philip left Boston the day after the murder for his happy place, the Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. Less than 100 miles away, he'd been there 19 times in the previous three months playing poker. Uh, before checking in on the evening of April 15th, Philip made a stop. He wasn't broke, but he didn't have, uh, uh, made another stop. Excuse me. This, he's going he's gonna to try and get some more money. going to try and do another Craigslist crime. Uh, he's not broke, but he doesn't have enough money to enter the $75 a hand poker game he preferred to play. So he goes back to Craigslist. He connects with Cynthia Melton now a 26-year-old exotic dancer that one online reviewer called the reigning hot psycho bitch of the Cadillac Lounge Strip Club in Providence. Uh, Providence, Rhode Island. I'm pretty sure that's a compliment, is uh, what they're saying there. Using a disposable track phone, he had several, used them with the previous two women we've met. Uh, Phillips set an appointment with Cynthia at the Holiday Inn Express in Warwick, Rhode Island. When Philip arrived around 11 p.m., he's wearing a brown baseball hat pulled down, partially concealing his eyes. He bought the cap at Walmart just an hour earlier. By now, he must realize that his face is all over the news. Uh, did he think he's going to get away with murder? He's just going to go do some gambling like nothing happened, come back to Boston, keep going to med school, just move on with his life, you know, get married. Uh, security footage from the Holiday Inn would show he was wearing blue jeans, pink polo shirt, same black jacket uh, he'd worn on his dates with Jalissa Brisman and Trisha Leffler. Unbeknownst to Philip, Cynthia is prepared to deal with someone like Markoff uh, more than Jalissa or Trisha had been. She had a system worked out. Uh, her husband, Keith, stayed in the hotel uh, lobby uh, while she turned tricks. What a, what a nice guy. What a nice husband pimp. Just respectfully staying nearby while his wife turns tricks in the room, you know, just a little ways down the hall uh, to make the family some money. Uh, as soon as Philip enters the room, like he'd done with Trisha and Jalissa, he pulls a gun on Cynthia. 
Uh, she noted later that he looked really nervous. His hands were shaken, not as calm as he'd been with Trish. Wonder if that had anything to do with the fact that he was now wanted for murder and that his face was plastered all over the noose. Despite his nerves, Philip plunges ahead, tries to pull a or tries to put a ball gag on Cynthia. Uh, she fights back. She knows her husband is, you know, not far away and that he'll he'll be coming soon because she didn't, you know, text him as part of their system. She always texted a minute or so right after the John showed up and into the room to let her husband know that she was okay. And again, what a gentleman Keith is. Uh, if only every straight woman could be lucky enough to have such a man, uh, a knight in shining armor in her life. That's when you know he cares. When he insists that you text him after your John shows up to reassure him that he's only there to fuck you, not to hurt you. Uh, Philip does not manage to get the ball gag in her mouth. He does manage to tie her hands up with zip ties. As he's doing so, he says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. I don't want to kill you. I just need money. Don't worry. I'm just broke. I need some cash or some cards. Then as he's quickly going through her belongings, he's interrupted by a knock on the door. Who's that? He yells. And then Cynthia's husband is like, I'm Keith, Cynthia's husband. And then Philip is like, she's fine. Go away. And then Keith is like, okay, cool. Uh, Thank you. And Philip's like, no problem. Now get out of here. Come back tomorrow or something. And Keith doesn't say anything uh, because he's already put his headphones back in. He's walked down the hall to uh, play some more solitaire in the lobby on his flip phone. Uh, No, luckily that didn't happen. Instead of answering, Keith uses his extra key and just lets himself in. He knows something's going on. Now the two men are facing off, uh, you know, against one another, facing each other inside the room. Philip has a gun raised, pointed at Keith. Slowly, Philip and Keith kind of dance around one another. And then Philip exits the room, takes off, empty-handed, stumbles as he, uh, you know, falls to the ground, picks himself up, runs out of the hotel into the night. Keith and Cynthia then call the police. I wonder what Keith told him. Uh, Hello, officer. This is Keith. Keith who? You know, Keith, uh, the dude who hangs out in the lobby of the Holiday Inn Express in Warwick. The guy who plays solitaire on his flip phone while his wife is having illegal sex with men for money in one of the rooms down the hall. <laughs> yeah, that, that Keith. Good. How are you doing? How's the fam? Fantastic. Hey, I'd like to report a crime. Uh, after running away, Philip drives to the Foxwoods Casino where he's hiding out for two days or he's going to hide out for two days. He must not have been too shaken up by his narrow escape or the fact that he just killed someone. And the Boston police had an entire task force dedicated to him because he plays some great poker. He's on fire that weekend, or those couple days, turned $700 into $5,300. While he's winning the poker table, detectives are connecting the attack on Cynthia to the Craigslist killer attacks. After hearing about the attack, one task force detective reportedly says, he's a brazen prick, huh? His picture is all over the news. On Saturday, April 18th, the Boston PD get a name to go along with their pictures of the Craigslist killer. Through the emails Andy sent, the police are able to obtain his IP address because he wasn't on the dark web. Uh, They get some court orders, and by subpoenaing uh, his serverlive.com, they're able to determine that the emails are sent from a computer inside of a building where Markoff lived with Megan at 8 High Point Circle in Quincy, just south of Boston. They obtain the names of the residents of the building, then do some Facebook searches based on these names, and one with Philip's name turns up the wedding page that Megan McAllister, his fiance, had enthusiastically compiled. Detectives think that the dude in the hotel security camera footage from both Boston and Warwick looks a hell of a lot, hell of a lot like Philip Markoff in these, uh, you know, uh, wedding page photos. They then learn that Philip Markoff is a med student at Boston University, so they obtain a copy of a student ID picture. They compare that picture with the video images they have of the suspect. Really seems like he's the dude. The police now set up a stakeout. Right? They take up positions uh, outside the building. They're going to keep an eye on Markoff until they can get just a bit more evidence to really, you know, have, uh, you know, more than enough for their arrest to make this a open and shut case. 
Because the IP address pointed to the building and not specifically to Philip's apartment or one of his computers, they're not quite ready to bust him yet. Uh, it's a Saturday night, and now six unmarked police cars are around the building, making sure that Philip will not escape. Uh, when Philip leaves to go to BJ's supermarket, detectives follow. They take some items Philip touched, send them in for fingerprint analysis. Uh, that same day, other officers show some photos of Philip to Cynthia and Tricia, both positively identify him. That dude for sure is our attacker. Uh, police also pleasantly surprised that their suspect has made a number of really big fuck-ups during his crimes, uh, like putting his gloves on after he bound and gagged Leffler, right, how he took him off for a little while there, like walking right by security cameras, not hiding his face. Now with Philip Markoff's name and the IP address pointed to his building, the two witnesses positively identifying him, looks like it's going to be a pretty open and shut case. The following day on April 19th, some detectives interview his med school lab partner. Uh, her name is Tiffany Montgomery. Uh, she and Phil had spent a lot of time together working on various projects, and she told detectives that Philip creeped her out. She, she said he had terrible mood swings. Uh, sometimes uh, she thought about, thought about telling school counselors that he was suicidal, but then at other times, he seemed so happy and carefree, she thought maybe he was fine. Uh, she said he was either really upbeat or practically comatose. She didn't know what was wrong with him, just that, quote, he wasn't right in the head. And then task force detectives discover through a search of Philip Markov's email account that he's leading a secret life. Uh, on his computer, detectives find a picture he posted of his torso and his hands wrapped around his, uh, his erect penis on an alternative lifestyle website called Alt.com, a pay-per-month site that bills itself as your online adult personals, BDSM, leather, and fetish community. Uh, we discussed similar sites on the Truck Stop Killer Suck. Uh, Philip seemed to be interested based on his browsing history in many different fetishes, including, quote, transvestitism, and had profiles on numerous sex sites like Passion.com, Extreme Restraints, and Gay Club List. Calling himself Sex Addict 53885, he described his preference on one site as submissive and his experience level as, I am new at this. He wrote, I am currently a graduate student looking to experiment with the BDSM lifestyle. I am very interested in being dominated and being made to do different things. Among those different things, anal sex, being forced to wear a collar and leash and cross-dressing. I am looking for anyone open-minded, try new fetishes or show me what you know. I enjoy women, but I really want to meet a TSTVTG, transsexual, uh, transvestite, transgender for friendship and experimentation. I'm looking for doms and switches, but I'm open to experimenting with subs. Uh, in his profile, he used his real birthday, February 12th, 1986, his real description, blonde, blue eyes, six foot three, the actual city where he lived. When I first read all this, I thought, did he really intend to experiment, you know, and have some BDSM sex? Or, you know, uh, were there just going to be more people he was going to try and rob for some gambling money? When I thought about how he uh, used his real information for these sites, real birthday, real description, I think he was on these sites for sex, uh, not money. He wanted to meet Incubus. Put on the dress and get in the holding cage, slave. Stick your hard dick through the hole into the cage gate. Allow me to whip it. Scream, and you stay in the cage all night. Yeah, I mean, you know, something like that. I don't know. I'm probably getting too into that Incubus character. Uh, no wonder his lab partner thought he might be suicidal. He probably was. He's planning a wedding with a woman who clearly was not right for him. He wasn't exploring these fetishes with her. He's robbing people. He's meeting through Craigslist for poker money. How did he think all of this was going to end? He was a smart dude. Didn't he have to know that his two worlds were destined to collide? Maybe not. The ability to rationalize the most irrational things. Uh, one of humanity's greatest gifts, also one of its greatest curses. Some of us are just so damn good at believing what we want to believe, regardless of true objective reality. 
Investigators learned that Philip has begun to set up or had begun to set up his BDSM profiles on alt.com and other sites two years prior, back in May of 2007, just after he'd graduated from SUNY Albany, like we talked about earlier, back before he'd asked Megan to marry him, who apparently had no idea he was into this stuff. Interestingly, no evidence of Philip acting on any of these desires will ever turn up. Uh, they don't appear to have any direct relationship to his crimes, this, these interests, just another confusing piece of the Philip Markoff puzzle. Monday, April 20th, 2009, the police have spent two days now surveilling Markoff's apartment building. Now they watch as Philip leaves the building carrying luggage. Megan is with him. Undercover investigators tail the couple as they shop for food and run other errands. They note that McAllister seems affectionate while Markoff does not. Of course he's not affectionate with her. She doesn't want to tie him up and spank his naughty bottom. She's not incubus, guessing. Uh, the couple drove on I-95 South in Walpole, Massachusetts, heading back to the Foxwoods Casino. But they won't make it. The police worry that their guy is now going to try and cross state lines and complicate the arrest. Uh, they flip on their sirens, pull the pair over. Police approach the vehicle with guns drawn. Philip says nothing while Megan pleads with officers to stop, insisting they are making a mistake. An officer says, Philip Markoff, you, you are under arrest for the murder of Jalissa Brisman on April 14th, 2009. Murder, Megan repeats, now sobbing. You have the wrong guy. You have the wrong guy. But they don't. Uh, not only do they have photo evidence, but they have cell phone records, digital fingerprints, analog fingerprints, uh, thanks to Philip not having gloves on when he taped up Trisha Leffler and witnesses. Police put Philip and Megan in the back of one of their unmarked cars. Megan's Toyota is towed back to Boston PD headquarters uh, until investigators can get a warrant to search it and then release it. During questioning, Philip, arrogant as ever, argues about his Miranda rights, uh, won't give specific answers to any of the officer's questions. Uh, Megan insisted detectives that they have the wrong man. Boston PD put out a press statement that evening saying that they've apprehended the primary Craigslist killer suspect. Megan is released, goes home to stay at her family home in New Jersey. Philip, of course, stays. You know, he's not going anywhere. Two days later, on April 21st, 2009, Megan McAllister decides to take the matter of her fiance's innocence to the court of public opinion. She tells the Boston Herald, I will stand by Philip as I know he is innocent. This poor woman here. Uh, in the interview, she gushes about her fiance, who is set to be arraigned on murder, kidnapping, and gun possession charges. Uh, she says, sends an email to ABC's Good Morning America, where she says, unfortunately, you've been given the wrong information, as was the public. Philip could not hurt a fly. She calls him a beautiful person inside and out. The message is read on air. She also says, we expect to marry in August. We share a wonderful, meaningful life together. Unfortunately, the Boston police try to make money out of these things. Uh, no, they don't and release things without my knowledge or consent. She says, I will stand by Philip as I know he is innocent. I love him now and always will. Ugh. Uh, she also contacts People Magazine, tells them Philip is a beautiful man inside and out. He did not commit this crime. Unfortunately, someone else did and needs to be penalized. Uh, noon this day, Markoff is charged with Delissa Brisman's death after investigators find even more evidence. He pleads not guilty. Uh, he's held without bail in Boston's uh, Nashua Street Jail. The, the additional evidence police find comes from Philip and Megan's apartment. This is a preposterous amount of evidence. They find a gun hidden in a medical textbook, Gray's Anatomy. It had been hollowed out. Uh, it's a gun Philip had purchased under a pseudonym, Andrew Miller. A driver's license for Andrew Miller is found on Philip uh, at the time of his arrest. When police looked at the bill of sale for the gun, they find Philip's fingerprints all over it. <laughs> this obviously looks really bad especially because they also find bullets for this gun, the exact kind of bullets used on Jalissa Brisman, and then ballistics tests will confirm this is the exact gun used to kill Jalissa. Hard to weasel out of all of this evidence, you know? Oh, what? What, is that all you got? Oh, oh, you got the murder weapon with my fingerprints all over it? 
Oh, and proof that I bought it. Okay. Oh, and you found it in my apartment, stored in a medical book that I bought, that it had been hollowed out. <laughs> Here I was worried you had a case against me, and this might go to trial. Uh, they also find a bunch of plastic zip ties, the exact kind used on the victims. They find duct tape that matched the duct tape used on Trisha. Uh, they find a laptop with fragments of communication between uh, Philip and Jalissa, Philip's laptop. They find disposable unused cell phones purchased in February of 2009, the kind that he had used to talk to victims. Still not done. Uh, they find under the couple's mattress, rolled socks stuffed with 16 pairs of panties, four from the victims that police already knew about. Uh, owners of the 12 others never identified. Had he robbed others? Had he perhaps killed others? We'll probably never know. Uh, was Markov so cool and collected when he robbed Trisha Leffler because, you know, uh, he had done it before? So much evidence. Can't, yeah, no way you can weasel out of all of this. Oh, I don't know. Sounds pretty circumstantial to me, officers. I mean, sure, you have the murder weapon connected to me and video surveillance connecting me to the scenes of all three crimes uh, when they happened. And sure, you have numerous eyewitnesses that I spoke with and or assaulted and fingerprints and victims' panties under my bed and a lot of other wishy-washy bullshit. But let me ask you this. Were you personally at any of the crime scenes when they happened? No? <laughs> I think it's time you let me go. Uh, no, he's, he's never getting let go off the record. A policeman will say that there is so much evidence that, uh, it was like a part of him wanted to get caught. Oh, and one more piece of evidence. There was blood on the shoes he was wearing the day he got arrested. Like they could just see blood splatters on his shoes. Julissa's blood. It really was like he wanted to get caught on April 23rd. A law enforcement official tells the Boston globe that Markov had been placed on suicide watch after an officer at the Nashua street jail notices marks on his neck indicate he might have tried to hang himself. Uh, he's given paper clothes, put on 24-hour surveillance. The next day, April 24th, Rhode Island investigators announced they've linked Philip's fingerprints and text messages to Cynthia's assault at the Warwick Holiday Inn. That day, Philip broke down during a visit with his parents, sister-in-law, and estranged brother, Jonathan. First time he'd spoken to Jonathan in years. He's sobbing. He knows he's fucking done. The emotional family visit, the first time the 23-year-old's family had seen Philip since his arrest. According to Markoff's attorney, Philip's family is very supportive of him. Megan has yet to visit him in jail. Her family takes charge of canceling the wedding plans. Uh, they contact a band member of the B Street Band, a Bruce Springsteen cover band, and tell them that the wedding is off. The B Street Band, another victim of the Craigslist killer. Were they able to replace that gig or did they lose that money? What happened to fake Bruce and the fake E Street Band? Did their fake band lose real money? Incredibly, I can't find sources. For that exact information. I'm so sorry. But before you break into tears, I know this is probably the most upsetting part of this entire episode. I want you to know that the cover band seems to be doing pretty well right now. Uh, B Street Band's still around, and according to their website, bstreetband.com, they play Bruce's music, quote, almost spot on. Yes, that is a quote. Not spot on, but almost spot on. Uh, they'll be celebrating over 40 years of riding Springsteen's coattails on May 16th, 2021, with an anniversary Bahamas cruise for all their fans, or maybe for all of real Bruce's fans. Not sure whose fans they're referring to, fake Bruce or real Bruce. Uh, please, if you want to know more, uh, visit bstreetbandcruise.com for more details. Not even making any of that up. April 26th, 2009, uh, news outlets began reporting on Philip's secret life. They revealed that while he was a second-year medical student, he had not received any financial support from his family for many years, was living off the student loans in excess of $130,000. Uh, did they not have the money to support him? Uh, was he robbing and gambling to try and pay his way through school? Also, it's reported that he and his brother had been estranged for years prior to his brother, as I you know, visited him in prison, mentioned that they were estranged. 
uh, what the fuck was really going on in this family, right? They've never spoken much about Philip. They're very private. I mean, they might just be really quiet, private people. They might just not want to talk about such a painful subject, which is totally fair and makes sense. Or just totally speculating, are they hiding something? Was his childhood really that all-American? How many skeletons are in their closets? Uh, Philip's fiance, Megan, learns about his erotic pastimes when NBC News' Jeff Rawson reports on the Today Show about Philip's hidden sex life and his sex addict 5385 account. He had a slightly different number there. I, th I think the one I said earlier, he had a few different accounts. How shocking would that be if you had no idea? How much does that fuck you up? On April 28th, Megan tells the media she will continue to stand by Philip through her new, through her new attorney, Robert Honecker Jr., Megan releases a statement in which she thanks friends and family for their support and expresses sympathy for all those afflicted by these events. I also love my fiance, she says. I will continue to support him throughout this legal process. What has been portrayed and leaked to the media is not the Philip Markoff that I know. To me and my family, he is a loving and caring person. And in the eyes of the law and the constitution, he is innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I just can only hope that the criminal justice system will not be overwhelmed and persuaded by what is being put forth in the media. My fiance's fate should not rest in the court of public opinion, but rather in a court of law. And what she's saying is true, but come on. They have so much fucking evidence. Uh, Megan added that she did not recognize the man in the security camera photos, that someone else must be responsible for the two robberies and the murder. Uh, the power of denial, so strong. Uh, she thought that that man in the footage, you know, wasn't her man. She just wasn't seeing what she wanted to see. Uh, Dr. Michael Wellner, a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at New York University's School of Medicine, offers up some insights on how she could have ignored so many warning signs, how she could ignore all this evidence, how she could still be able to think Philip is innocent at this point. He said, think about it. You've got your whole life wrapped up in someone. Your whole future is invested. It's a belief and a hope that's as intense as a religion. And suddenly to be confronted with that possibility that that's just not real, that it's a fantasy, you can't click that off overnight. It's a belief that you organize your life around. And then again, the soul searching. Whom have I picked? Is there something I didn't see? Am I a fool? Can I trust myself? A very difficult and vulnerable place to be. And I absolutely feel for this fiance. She's asking herself, how did I get involved with a con artist who, who I thought was charming? What happens when the person that we love turns out to be someone entirely different? And we find out when it's way too late. What happens when the person we love turns out to be someone we never recognize? And we find out way too late. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the doubling down effect and the backfire effect here on Time Suck before. Uh, most recently, the Nexium cult suck. How people can make a bad decision and because they just can't deal with uh, the idea that they've made a bad decision, that it reflects poorly on their judgment. They refuse to admit they've made a bad decision. They won't see the truth and they just continue to make more bad decisions. Some of that for sure coming into play here. Uh, bloggers, columnists, Barbara Walters, the ladies of The View, uh, all maintain that Megan is in deep denial that she should distance herself from Philip immediately. Uh, I mean, he looks, again, so guilty. Yes, he has not been tried, but man, looks really bad. The same day, April 26th, Philip has taken off around the clock suicide watch, uh, still has to wear paper clothing. April 29th or April 30th, Megan and her mom leave New Jersey, head up to Boston to see Markoff in the Nashua Street Jail. It'd be the first time she had seen him since the two were pulled over by those detectives on I-95. During the 25 minutes Megan spends with him, she breaks off their engagement. She'd been planning on doing so. She'd come to jail without her engagement ring on. She'd been apart from him long enough to finally see him for, her, for who he really was. She tells Mark off she would probably never see him again. Philip does not say much except, I'm sorry. Megan's lawyer announces to the press that the engagement has been terminated and that Philip and Megan are no longer getting married. Her lawyer tells the press that she would uh, be moving back in with her parents 
and resuming classes in the fall. On April 30th, Philip attempts suicide again uh, by using a metal spoon to slit his wrist. Doesn't do much damage, and the attempt is unsuccessful. May 4th, prosecutors formally now charge Philip Markoff with the Rhode Island attack on Cynthia Melton, as well as Julissa's murder. Uh, by June of 2009, Philip has been moved out of the infirmary into the general population. Apparently, he quickly became friendly with some of the other inmates, even starts setting up some poker games. By all accounts, he is suddenly now adjusting well to his life in prison. On June 11th, despite saying she'd never see him again, Megan McAllister visits Philip one last time to tell him she's going to attend medical school in the Caribbean. Uh, she said she didn't plan on seeing him again for a long period of time, if ever. Soon after her visit, Philip is caught with a stockpile of anti-anxiety pills that have been prescribed by the prison psychiatrist. Looked like he was preparing for another suicide. He's placed back on suicide watch for a few days. Then he's released back into Gen Pop. Uh, of course, he was probably placed on suicide watch after that meeting. Right, how tough would that be? He has to know now he'll never become a doctor, never be a free man again in all likelihood. Meanwhile, his fiance is going to become a doctor and going to get her doctorate in the Caribbean. That'd be a tough pill to swallow, sitting in a prison cell, especially during a Boston winter, thinking about the girl you were supposed to marry living down in the Caribbean and possibly worse, you know, knowing for sure that you are never, ever going to get to watch the B Street Band announce your marriage in an intimate setting in front of family and friends before playing a nearly spot-on rendition of Born to Run. I mean, that's, you know, something you should probably think about. On June 19th, a grand jury returns a seven-count indictment against Philip in the Brisbane and Leffler cases. Uh, June 29th, it's announced that the murder trial has been set for March 14th, 2010, after, after a hearing in Suffolk Superior Court but Philip uh, is not planning on going to that trial. On August 15th, 2010, Philip finally succeeds in killing himself on the day after the anniversary of what would have been his wedding day. I'm sure that is not a coincidence. In his suicide note, he writes only three words, B Street Band. And those words are followed by a frowny face. Uh, fake Bruce is real devastated when he hears about this, uh, this connection to the tragedy that night in a New Hampshire banquet hall uh, because he is so shaken up, he sings, according to media reports, some not even close to spot on renditions of Glory Days in my hometown. JK, gosh dang. Of course, that's nonsense. Uh, no, no. Uh, Phil's suicide is actually pretty fucking intense. And, uh, you know, normally I would uh, treat a suicide with more reverence, but uh, this guy uh, did a lot of naughty things. Uh, his death was incredibly violent. It seems very well thought out. Uh, he for sure did not want to be brought back. He'd spread out photos of Megan McAllister on the table inside his cell. He wrote Megan and Pocket in his own blood above the doorway. This is going to get more intense. Pocket was a term uh, Markoff and McAllister used for each other, you know, when they were together, a pet term. Poor Megan. I wonder if he did this to partly hurt her. I mean, he had to have known she was going to hear about all this. To make sure his suicide is successful, he slashed major arteries on both his ankles and both his legs and the carotid artery in his neck. Then he used plastic bags to catch the flowing blood then swallowed toilet paper so that he could not be resuscitated and pulled a plastic bag over his head, tightened it with gauze to finalize the act. He laid down in his bed, covered himself up with a blanket, and then died. What the fuck? Man, that was an intense way to go out. That was not a cry for help. That was, uh, you are done. Uh, September 16th, prosecutors file a legal brief, meaning they will not proceed further with the trial. Uh, per Massachusetts law, they dismissed the charges against Markov. Since he dies before a verdict, he cannot legally be found guilty now. So technically, I can't say for sure that he did all that I've just said he did, but come on, all that evidence, that motherfucker was guiltier than OJ. Uh, let's hop out of this timeline now. 
Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. The Craigslist killer, uh, Philip Markoff, uh, we still don't know really why he did what he did. On the surface, he had no reason to. He was a handsome second-year med student who was engaged to a smart and beautiful woman. He had everything going for him. On the possibility of a comfortable, successful life, probability of that ahead of him. Had a wedding to look forward to. Had the B Street Band booked. Uh, but seriously, he had all that uh, on the surface. Below the surface and behind the scenes, uh, he was a small stakes gambler. Uh, you know, uh, curious about some BDSM stuff that his fiance was not uh, apparently into, or at least didn't know about. He's doing this behind his, uh, you know, fiance's back. He was a serial criminal, uh, robbing at least two people, killing at least one. Uh, all three were women he'd met through Craigslist. Why couldn't he have just dealt with who he really was? Why not see a therapist secretly if you're gonna, gonna hide something? I mean, if you're leading a double life, man, get some help. How long do you think you can keep it all going before it all comes crashing down? I mean, don't you think it always does eventually come crashing down? Don't those two worlds eventually almost always collide? Even when they don't, don't you get sick of carrying the weight of all those secrets? Is it worth keeping it all going to live in constant fear of finally being exposed? To know that at any moment, your partner might get the wrong DM, the wrong phone call from someone in your other life. Maybe the police will show up. Then when it all comes crashing down, any hurt you would have caused by confessing your secrets earlier has been amplified. I think about how in between my two marriages, in one relationship, I was a double life leading dirtbag. Uh, cheated on my girlfriend at the time many times. It was terrible. I always feel guilt over it. And having been that guy and now no longer being that guy, man, I do not miss being that fucking guy. Always worried. When's she going to find out? When is this all going to end so badly? And it did end badly. Uh, right when all that was starting for me, a comic friend of mine knew something was going on. I didn't tell him exactly, but he knew. And one night when he was over at the apartment, I shared with his girlfriend. He told me, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I know how this ends. With a U-Haul and some tears. <sighs> he was absolutely right. Like absolutely spot on right. I also think about my grandpa Ward, how he's always been able to fall asleep at the drop of a dime. This is going to relate, <laughs> I promise. Uh, one day I asked him, Grandpa, how can you fall asleep so easily, so quickly? And he gave me the best reply. Just two words, clean conscience. You can fall asleep because you don't have shit to worry about. So if you're living that double life, do yourself and everyone. Uh, it's eventually going to hurt a favor. Just confess. Probably going to be painful as fuck, but better than the alternative. Lighten that load you're carrying. Clean that conscience. Uh, my marriage now, I don't give a fuck if Lindsay grabs my computer or my phone. Uh, she can go through my search history, which is full of horrible shit. Uh, thanks to time suck. Uh, but I don't care what she finds. She has my phone to look, uh, you know, look up stuff all the time. If it's closer than her phone. Some people think that's weird. Like, oh, your wife just goes through your phone. I don't give a shit. I could care less. Uh, nothing to hide and it feels so good. Uh, secrets. I think oftentimes, man, they can become infected. They can fester. They can poison your heart, corrode your soul. Uh, they can turn you if you're not careful into some version of the Craigslist killer. So don't do that. Uh, let's get to today's top five takeaways. Hail Nimrod. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Craigslist killer. Uh, a bit of a deceiving misnomer. Many think he was a serial killer. No, uh, while it's a good sounding moniker for a new show, Philip Markoff killed, as far as we know, one person, Jalissa Brisman, in 2009. Uh, using Craigslist, he did rob at least two other women. Uh, while he was certainly a bad dude, probably, possibly, but probably not a serial killer. Uh, number two, 
Craigslist, while mostly good, can be a pretty dangerous place. Craigslist has been used as a way to lure victims into the hands of a variety of criminals, including almost 130 murderers. Uh, Meeting up with strangers from the internet is always a risky proposition. So meet up in public, well-lit places where your friends and family will know where you're going to be or maybe don't meet up at all. Number three, uh, the B Street Band will be celebrating over 40 years of never writing their own music on May 16th, 2021 with an anniversary Bahamas cruise for all of the E Street Band fans who can't afford to see the real Bruce in concert. Please visit bstreetbandcruise.com for more details on how to hear almost spot on Bruce Springsteen cover songs. And I am such an asshole. They're probably awesome dudes, but that's funny for me. Number four, uh, no one really knows what made Philip Markoff snap. Uh, No one knows a lot of things about Philip Markoff, including where all those panties came from uh, at his apartment. Were there other victims? Is that why he seemed so confident in his first robbery? Because his victims were sex workers who statistically are more hesitant to report crimes to the police than the rest of the general population? Uh, I guess we'll, we'll probably never know. And number five, something new as a staple of the internet, Craigslist has been used for so many things. Uh, Did you know that a bank robber once used it to stage an elaborate movie-like diversion during a heist? Back in 2008, a creative criminal with a flair for the dramatic robbed an armored truck parked outside of a Bank of America in Monroe, Washington, just a half hour northeast of Seattle. Anthony Curcio crowdsourced his robbery by placing an ad on Craigslist for road maintenance workers. He asked applicants to meet near the bank wearing yellow safety vests, goggles, a blue shirt, and a respirator mask, the same disguise he was wearing when he overpowered a guard with pepper spray, stole money, and fled the scene. Police arrived to find several men matching the suspect's exact description. Pretty fucking genius, uh, but he would get caught. Uh, Curcio's undoing would come a month later when a homeless man reported to the police that several weeks before the robbery, he'd seen a man drive up to that Bank of America, uh, retrieve a disguise from behind a trash bin, The man found it suspicious enough to write down the license plate number of the car, which he later provided to the police, and that car, which was registered to Curcio. Uh, What the man had seen was one of Curcio's practice runs to ensure proper timing of the heist. Uh, Out of prison since 2013, Curcio is now an author and a public speaker. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Craigslist killer has been sucked. Uh, I know so much more about Craigslist now. Uh, interesting tale. Hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans, Bit Elixir, Logan Keith, the Art Warlock, running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Uh, thanks to all those who've joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Over 24,000 members who continue to make Time Suck more than a podcast. They make it a community. Uh, hail Nimrod to all of you. Thank you to Liz Hernandez and her all-seeing eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page <laughs> where the, uh, what is it, We Are Dan uh, thing is, is still going on. Uh, Megan Howell, Ellie Darling, Danny Ryan, Robbie Erickson, Jacob Carey, Kaylee Fitzpatrick, Jeffrey Bistron, Adam Gustafson, uh, Kathleen Saller, and Shelly Annenson. I apologize if I, I mispronounced any of your names, but I'm sure you're not surprised. Uh, thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad of Jesse, Becky, and Cody running wild on Discord. And thanks to all of you uh, space lizards playing the Time Suck Trivia portion of the app, of uh, the Time Suck app, Bodhi210, currently in the round six lead with 3,000 points. Couple weeks yet to play. Uh, next week is our last suck of 2020. What will it be about? Not sure. Uh, half of it will be a recap of what's happened this year with Time Suck, roughly half. Uh, with Bad Magic Productions. You know, it's been a it's been an interesting year for sure. Uh, the other half will be some shorter inspirational tale like we did last year. I like that being a little tradition now. 
Uh, I look forward to telling a lighter story, also sharing some, you know, behind the scenes info with all of you. Uh, and again, yeah, what a wild, wild year to recap, but we have been very fortunate and uh, yeah, a very, uh, I'm proud and just uh, grateful for what we were able to accomplish here in 2020. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. The last update, a, a especially touching update to an update that touched many people's hearts uh, quite some time ago here in our community. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. All right, we got a lot of these messages. I'm just going to share one. It's about snakes, of course. Uh, first up, an example of one of the many flying snake-related messages sent last week from snake uh, <laughs> fearing meat sack, Dylan Evester. Uh, Dylan writes, Dan, you awakened my nightmares. Greetings, Maine Dan. This is one of the many Dans that have come about in recent times. <laughs> I am here because you were recently making up some bullshit that got me at first because it resonated with something I vaguely remembered learning about during my childhood. There is a snake that glides and is venomous. It terrified me as a child and you woke up that fear that had been stuffed deep into my psyche. I'll attach a picture with the description below. Signed, Dylan Ivester, a.k.a. Dan number 1,366. <laughs> Thank you, Dylan, a.k.a. Dan uh, 1366. Yeah, the fear is real. And also, again, I love how the We Are Dan, or uh, the Dan Sember, as it's being called by some movement, continues to grow inside the cult of the Curious Facebook group. Oh, how wonderfully weird. She cracks me up. Uh, <laughs> thanks for uh, uh, everyone playing, that, playing along with that joke. Hail Nimrod. Uh, now, very cool new update to an old episode coming in from Super Sucker Kenzie Evans, coming in from across the Atlantic. Thanks to everyone else who also passed us along. Kenzie writes, Zodiac Killer Cypher Sust, motherfuckers. Dear Master Sucker, motherfucker, Dan <laughs> Danius Cummins, I'm your Huckleberry the Third Esquire. Sorry for the aggressive subject line. Just wanted to get your attention. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I've been listening for a few months now, though still way behind. Just finished listening to the Spanish Inquisition. Listening to the podcast has been a lifesaver on my long car journeys. I drive two hours each way to work. Wow. And you've really helped break up the monotony of the drive. Your brand of comedy is exactly my sense of humor, and I love your wacky segues and character cameos like the infamous Chikatilo. What is big deal? I just wrestled to make sure a strong Russian youth ignore soft cock of shame. Uh, anyway, to the point of this email, I thought you would have been an, I thought you would be interested to know that the Zodiac Killer ciphers have finally been solved. An Australian software engineer, an American cryptographer, and a Belgian software engineer, sounds like the beginning of a joke, cracked the final cipher after 50 years. The cipher reads, I hope you are having lots of fun and trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise. So they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my new life is life. Uh, because I know that my new life is life will be an easy one in paradise, death. Uh, what an absolute creep. Uh, people who are capable of thinking like this chill me to the bone, right? Sorry for the long email. I just thought you'd like to hear the news on the breakthrough after all this time. Keep being awesome. Thanks for making time suck a thing that I never knew I needed. Your faithful, ye old English time sucker and soon to be space lizard, Kenzie Evans. Well, thank you, Kenzie. Uh, appreciate the info and the kind words. Yeah, the FBI recognized an international team, uh, yeah, as you said, of three private citizens for cracking this code. And, and they released a statement saying the FBI is aware that a cipher attributed to the Zodiac Killer was recently solved by private citizens. The Zodiac Killer case remains an ongoing investigation for the FBI's San Francisco division and our local law enforcement partners. The Zodiac Killer terrorized multiple communities across Northern California, 
And even though decades have gone by, we continue to seek justice for the victims of these brutal crimes. Due to the ongoing nature of the investigation and out of respect for the victims and their families, we will not be providing further comment at this time. Yeah, 46-year-old software developer in Virginia, Dave Aranchak, uh, seems to have led this team. Uh, the mention of the TV show and gas chambers refers to a call made to a talk show on KGO TV a month prior to sending the cipher, uh, you know, to the Zodiac Killer sending it. How cool to be if this somehow led to either an arrest or if the suspect is dead, which is probable, at least an announcement of this guy probably did it. Uh, the Zodiac Killer sent in that code 51 years ago and they just cracked it. Next up, super sucker TJ Smith delivers us an interesting MLM, Amway-related message. TJ writes, Hello, Dan, he who sucks highest and hardest on Suck Mountain. Satan's wingman, guardian of the suck. I've been listening to Time Suck for about a year now and can tell you my life is so much better for it. I started listening for the true crime episodes, then because of your dark comedic tangents and inside jokes, stayed to listen to your breakdown of historical events and figures. You often offer stances on debates and polarizing people, and they are supported by interesting facts and research. Sorry it's taken so long to finally contact you, but I absolutely had to after listening to an older episode on the cult of Tony and Susan Alamo. I type as fast as an arthritic chimp in the dark, <laughs> so this message takes time. In the episode, you discuss in detail MLMs and Amway specifically. When I was in sixth grade, my teacher ran our class like a business. We would get in play money, $100 for an A, $50 for a B, and $25 for a C. With $1,000, you could buy a share of stock. At the end of the year, we divided the money in the treasury by the total of stocks in the class and paid out how much uh, each share was worth. It was a great lesson in economics at that age, and while it may be ancient history at this point, I still remember that I made $163 for my time in sixth grade. Anyway, our way of raising money was to sell items from a kid-friendly version of Amway. I looked into the company in high school only because of hearing the name and thought how funny it was that I got to sell it back then. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't until listening to that old episode that I realized for years that teacher probably moved up the Amway ranks because each spring, he had 20 to 25 new recruits to sell to their families and friends. How crazy is it to think that he was padding his teacher salary with great God Amway money? Amway, uh, anyway, just needed to take 44 minutes to write you. Made me laugh and had to share. Sorry, one more thing. As a fan, I know you're a dad and so am I to three beautiful meat sacks, two boys, 18 and 15, as well as a beautiful little eight-year-old daughter. As the boys in particular get older, I worry about having things we can really bond over and thus be involved in their lives over a time when they really want to be independent. Well, Time Suck offers, off, yeah. well, Time Suck offers just that, with my oldest at least. He and I both listen while going about our day. We really like the Zodiac and, uh, oh man, Simo Haya, I can never remember how to say his last name, the, the Finnish sniper episodes. Uh, so thank you more uh, than you know, and as a parent can understand. To be able to have conversations and laughs with him over something you created, it hits in the feels. Thank you, sir, sucks a lot. Well, thank you, TJ. Uh, hope you like today's Zodiac Killer update. Glad the suck can help with some parental bonding. I know that can be tough. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, and how ballsy that your Amway <laughs> teacher, your Amway member teacher might have been, uh, you know, using, using Amway in the classroom, getting kids to sell some Amway products. Hail the good God, Amway, maker of safe, affordable, and ammonia-free glass cleaner and many other useful and money-saving home care products. Now let's hear from a Cummins Law victim. Funny Sack B.B. Lynn writes, Cummins Law and Disorder, and a thank you. Never thought I'd get Cummins Law, but God damn it, you motherfucker, I've been baptized in embarrassment. I was walking back home the other day when I asked my boyfriend to come pick me up. I underestimated the distance and overestimated my physical capabilities. Anyway, he pulls up to where I am with his, uh, when his new car automatically connects to my phone. I've been listening to the Dark Ages episode, and my boyfriend became very confused when Kroll began talking about mostly beef food and semen fry sauce. 
<laughs> Needless to say, my boyfriend had some questions. So fuck you for making my boyfriend question my sanity. It's mostly beef, I promise. Uh, now that I'm done cursing your name, it's time to give you my thanks. In the early days of the suck, you brought up how much you can't stand complainers who whine about their lives, but make up excuses and don't do anything about it. I was one of those boohoo babies and I needed to hear that. My anxiety wasn't an excuse to give up on life. And even though I think comfort is a necessity in life, so is hard work. This is what made me finally decide to join the military so I could afford school, get some experience under my belt. I've been in for almost two years now and joining the military has made me grow and change more than all my life. Uh, I've met my boyfriend who has taught me to love myself. I've learned to put myself first sometimes. I've learned that there are way more good people in the world than one could ever know. So thank you, but still, fuck you. <laughs> I hope to eventually be able to go to one of your stand-up shows. Happy holidays to the entire Bad Magic family and fan base. Yours truly, Brooke, follower of Lucifina. Uh, Brooke, thank you for your service and so happy for you. You fucking did it, right? You chose a better life for yourself. So many don't. Uh, you made some moves. Didn't have to. You pushed yourself for change. That's that's hard, uh, you know, And you, but you wanted to change for the better and you're now reaping the rewards of I'm sure what's been a lot of hard work. And Nimrod is so pleased, as is Lucifina. Hail you, Brooke. Uh, now for some more inspiration. From Happy Hunting Sack, Eric Sanner. Eric writes, banner fucking year. Hello to Master Sucker and the great Time Suck crew. Eric Sanner, loyal Time Sucker and Space Wizard here. This is going to be a long one, so buckle up, buttercup. I was born and raised in a small central Nebraska town, enlisted in the U.S. Army at 17 in 2003, was in the infantry for six glorious years. Did two tours in Iraq and being infantry, I saw more than my fair share of horrific shit. Medically separated for hearing loss, the Army wanted to put me in a non-combat job. I opted to be separated. It was during that six years that I developed my dark sense of humor. Bounced from place to place, from job to job, I was a regional manager under Captain Whiskerhorn, known to cust uh, customers as Lieutenant Sugar Britches. Nice. Was also a field tester for Woody's rape repellent. <laughs> that was a rough stretch, pun intended. Wee! Uh, skip to 2020, found time suck after your Get Out of Here Devil album. I've binge listened since and I'm caught up. Found my community in the process, realized I'm not the only dark son of a bitch on this flat rock we call Earth. Uh, through this shitty year of pestilence, I got engaged to the mother of my six kids. Three stepkids, three directly descended, have made a jump in status. No promotion, but a big raise, more responsibility at my work. Also got the biggest whitetail buck of my hunting career this year. Hunting is my therapy. War memories instead of go uh, for war memories instead of going through life drugged up on VA meds. This year has been rough, but it is what you make it. Nothing can stop hard work and a positive attitude, cliche but true, with a little dark-sided humor thrown in. Thank you and the crew for simply doing what you do and helping anyone and everyone with what you can. P.S. All pictures attached, taken in Nebraska. The one of me on one knee, taken at Fort Robinson, the same Fort Robinson where Chief Crazy Horse was killed. Also wanted to send you guys some venison jerky, but don't know the address to the suck dungeon. And would you guys even eat it? Especially with COVID and such, would you even want? Thank you guys for reading this. And as always, keep on sucking. Uh, well, wow, Eric. Uh, that view from near Fort Robinson is beautiful. Not to sound like a dick, but I genuinely didn't realize Nebraska had vistas like that. I just think of it as so flat. And that buck is a beauty. Uh, thank you for the pick. Yeah, you got a good one. COVID kind of fucked my honey plans for this year. Everyone getting sick here, including me. Put too much work on my plate. I uh, would love some jerky. P.O. Box 3891, Coeur Idaho, 83816. Uh, I already had COVID, so I'm not worried. And uh, I, I will eat it, but please don't poison me. Uh, so glad you found your community. Thanks for your service. You got a beautiful lady. Thanks for the pics. Congrats. That was weird that I added that about the pics. I just I meant like in a nice way you shared your life. Not like, oh, thanks for the... Thanks for the pics, you lady. Uh, and congrats on a great year. Keep on grinding. Hail Lucifina and keep it dark. Two more. First, a quick shout out from a hurting sucker, Charlie Ward. Charlie writes, hey, Danimal, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. I started at the beginning. 
skipped around a bit, and I listened to Is We Dumb as well. I used to have more time to listen, but being in the hospitality industry, I'm rarely going to the office for work. I wanted to thank you for giving me something to listen to in order to take my mind off things recently. Had to put my dog down and listening to your podcast made things better. He was my best friend for 12 years. I wanted him to go down with some dignity instead of breaking his leg after falling down a staircase. At any rate, after listening to a recent Time Suck and subsequent Is We Dumb, I remember you were talking about how ridiculous the name Harold Richard would be. And I wanted to let you know that my father was the owner of that unfortunate first and middle name. <laughs> first and middle, oh, okay, Harold Richard. It was always a little annoying when one of my friends in school would figure, would figure out that my father's name was Harry Dick. At any rate, thanks for doing uh, what you do, especially with all the charity. And if you do read this on the podcast, can you give a shout out to my dog, Cooper? I imagine he would have gotten along well with Bojangles. You're welcome for the long email, CW. Well, sorry for your loss, Charlie, uh, first and foremost. And good boy, Cooper, wag your tail up there in puppy heaven. Bojangles is pleased to have some extra table scraps on him. And, and I hope Harry Dick was a fantastic father. Too bad he didn't give you the exact same name, right? You could have been Harry Dick, whatever your last name is, Junior. Could have been a Harry Dick Junior. Probably ended up as a serial killer. Uh, glad we could help turn things around, Charlie. Keep on sucking. And now the last one, big update. Longtime listeners will remember Adam from Canada and his baby boy, Jacob, who was suffering from cancer. Adam wrote in some messages that definitely made me cry. Uh, many, of, I think everybody here at the Suck Dungeon Cry, many of you as well. Uh, the Cult of the Curious sent little Jacob a lot of presents. We all uh, hope to hear some good news eventually. Well, Jennifer Smith, Adam's wife, and Jacob's uh, uh, mother has some good news. Thank Nimrod. Uh, to share with us all now, she writes, Dear Dan and Lindsay, my name is Jennifer. And although you do not know me, you do know my husband and son, or at least know of them. I'm the wife and mother of Adam, the random Canadian meat sack, and Jacob, respectively. Uh, this letter has been a long time in the making, but recently, while listening to Time Suck and Scared to Death, I've heard your announcements for the giving tree and was completely struck, and I'm not embarrassed to say, brought to tears by the amount of money people have raised to help their fellow human beings and ensure a magical Christmas for their children. Hearing this made me think about all the kindness my family has received from the Time Suck family. I wanted to write and give you an update. Full disclosure, I'm not quite the wordsmith. My husband is. You're a very good writer, actually. Uh, both of you. And there is no way I could ever be a professional letter writer, but here goes. Since last... Uh, Adam wrote you, uh, many things have changed, as you can imagine. While in a hospital for a chemo treatment for Jacob, we found out that the treatments were not working. And although the cancer was not getting worse, it was certainly not getting better. This led us on a long path to discover that he is one of the lucky ones who has a mutation of his cancer genes, and this mutation makes the cancer resistant to chemotherapy. This is extremely rare, and in fact, at the time, he was the only patient with this mutation in the type of cancer that our doctor was aware of. Now, there are many things that happened in this time, including the slinging of a bunch of scientific jargon, jargon, consulting with the top neuroblastoma god in Canada, Tess, and finally being given a diagnosis of Jacob needing a very specific drug to fight this mutation and learning that if he didn't receive this drug, he would likely only have three months to live. Although, uh, although learning that the mutation was the cause of the chemo not working was a good first step, we ran into a number of issues, including the fact that the mutation had never been seen in this type of cancer before. And because this drug uh, needed was not approved to be used in pediatric patients, cue the quest to petition the powers that be to allow this drug to be given to our 10-month-old son. The next step was trying to determine whether we could even afford to buy this drug for our son, as we were told this was considered experimental and therefore could be quite pricey. I cannot even express how stressed and scared Adam and I were. Cannot imagine. We were basically given the worst case scenario and told it would come with a hefty price tag. And then just like that, our doctor got word that Health Canada would approve the drug for use and against all reason, mainly because the drug was 
only newly approved in Canada, our benefit company said they would cover the majority of the cost. Within a couple of weeks, we were able to start Jacob on the new medicine. We were able to watch cancer numbers that had once been in the 2000s drop and drop and drop. Felt like a miracle. By the time the next scan, a couple months later, most of the cancer was dead. Although I cannot say that Jacob is cancer-free, I can say that he is living with a small amount that is currently being managed and no major side effects from the medication. I'll be honest and say that I'd hoped I would be able to tell you all that he'd been able to ring that cancer-free bell, but that's not where we are, but he's doing amazing. He is now two and a half and is a wonderful little boy. He's busy doing little kid things like riding his bike. Yes, even in December in Canada, watching Paw Patrol, eating goldfish crackers, all things we once thought we'd never watch him do. We are blessed to have this beautiful person in our lives. He is the light. I can't imagine life without him. And because life wasn't quite crazy enough, we decided to add another person to the mix. On March 12, 2020, we welcomed our daughter and pandemic baby Grace to the world. She is smart and beautiful and perfectly completes our family. I am grateful every day for all the thoughts, prayers, and waves <laughs> that we have received from you and the Time Suck family. My heart is warmed when I think of all the love we have received and wanted to send my sincere thank you to both you and all of your listeners. I hope that one day when the world reopens and standing less than six feet from another person doesn't mean a potential death sentence, you can meet my wonderful family. I can shake your hand and thank you for your kindness. Uh, not just for my family, but for all the families you work so hard to help. In a world with so much hate and uncertainty, it's so refreshing to see true kindness and caring for other people. Please know that you and your team will always hold a special place in my heart. I wish you all health and happiness. Sincerely, Jennifer. Well, holy shit, Jennifer. Wow. Uh, so glad we got that kind of message. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Pretty nervous when I heard you had written in. So happy for you and your family. Uh, hail Nimrod. Hail fucking science. Hail the scientists who continually push shit forward. The researchers who saved your son, uh, who developed that medicine. That is miraculous. Cannot wait to meet you and your family, to see little Jacob. Uh, goldfish crackers, he's got good taste. I had some of those last night. Still eat those all the time. Uh, hope he gets so, in so many bike rides this winter. Tough little Canadian dude. Congrats on little Grace. Uh, hug your wonderful family from all of us and hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Wow. I was, uh, that was an intense one. Uh, so glad it was good news. More Bad Magic Productions content coming the rest of the week, Meet Sacks. Uh, Spooks was scared to death late Tuesday night. Silliness with Is We Dumb Wednesday at noon Pacific time. Uh, please don't uh, arrange robberies on Craigslist this week to feed your gambling addiction. Uh, how about you enjoy the holidays and instead you just, I don't know, maybe just keep on sucking. We don't episode... The episode's done. People no, are. I I know. I just wanted to uh, reach out to uh, Spokane area Dwayne. Oh, it's Dwayne. Yeah, I just wanted to see if he, uh, you know, just needed any help. You know, oh. maybe maybe a ride, maybe a teammate. I yeah. just, you know, I know some guys who, who like that sort of thing. What, pussy? Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.